You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hey, everybody. Tonight we're debating Jesus of the Quran or Jesus of the Gospels, and we are starting right now with Dr. Shabir Ali's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Ali. The floor is all yours. Thank you, James, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, brothers and sisters uh, in the faith, uh, everyone out there, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, say thank you to uh, you all for joining us. I begin by praising our creator and fashioner, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and I ask him to send peace and blessings upon all of his prophets, his messengers, and all the righteous people of all time. I pray that God will bless our meeting tonight and uh, make it uh, fruitful as uh, a way of... uh, Uh, building understanding uh, between Muslims and Christians uh, and uh, uh, a a way of uh, him uh, guiding us uh, and everyone else uh, to that truth that he wants us to accept for our everlasting salvation. So our topic uh, is uh, something that we have in common between uh, Muslims and and Christians. We believe in Jesus. Uh, We believe that uh, uh, Jesus was a messenger of God, uh, God's Messiah, Uh, who was uh, born in a special way, and uh, he uh, performed many miraculous deeds. In the end, God raised him to himself, and uh, many Muslims believe that Jesus will come back for a second time. Uh, Now, with uh, uh, the the dialogues of this nature, naturally, Muslims will appeal to the Quran as a book from God, and our Christian friends will appeal to the New Testament in particular, uh, the Gospels more specifically, and the Bible generally, uh, as the Word of God. And so it is important, I believe, uh, that we look at the uh, Quran's claim to be the Word of God and what Muslims might say uh, to help our non-Muslim friends uh, to see the Quran as the Word of God. I'd like to share with you a screen in which uh, I will make a presentation uh, just dealing with that particular aspect of the Quran, and then I'll go on to other 
um, aspects of our debate. Uh, for example, what specifically do we believe regarding Jesus uh, and how did Jesus appear in the Quran? So I'll start my slideshow from the beginning. And uh, here uh, I will um, show that uh, perhaps I've gone down here too uh, soon. Let me go down here. I'm going to start. Let me see, page down. Do I have this properly aligned? Um, yes. Okay. So, you know, the, in, in the New Testament, uh, there is, let me hide the screen for a moment so I can, I can focus on what I want to say. Um, the uh, values are attached to names of individuals. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, you have a certain individual uh, who is not named, but it's said that his name uh, is uh, the number 666 in, in most manuscripts, or you know, perhaps not the most reliable, but in, in many manuscripts. Uh, so uh, scholars have tried to find out what is the meaning of this number, and they realize that the author of Revelation is attaching numerical values to the letters of the alphabet, and uh, if someone's name uh, is such that when we add up the numerical values of the individual letters that spell that person's name, it'll come up to 666. Of course, that's a mystery as to who that person is. Some people think the Emperor uh, Nero or maybe the Emperor Domitian or something of this nature. Now, uh, that's in Greek, but it's done in Hebrew as well. And we know this from Matthew's gospel, where Matthew presents the genealogy of Jesus and says that there are 14 generations plus 14 generations plus 14 generations leading up to Jesus. Three sets of 14. Now, why 14? Bible commentators explain that uh, the name uh, Dawood, uh, the name for David in Hebrew uh, and, uh, and in Arabic, uh, adds up to uh, 14. The, the, the number of his name is 14. And so Matthew Matthew, with this play on the words and numbers, uh, is uh, packaging the ancestry of Jesus in three sets of 14. Now, in, in the Arabic as well, this is done. And uh, using the similar system, which is known as a system of gematria, uh, it, it, or abjadiyya in, in Arabic, we can come up with the value of the name Moses for 100, of 116, the value of the name Aaron as 377. Uh, sorry, as 261, and the total is 377. I'd like you to please try to remember that number, 377, because it'll come up again and again in what I want to present, and it'd be good if you if you remember that number. Just keep it in your mind. Uh, so it, it's it's just uh, uh, the, the number three and the seven repeated, and they're both uh, prime numbers, the three and the seven. So that should be easy to remember, 377. Now, if you look at the places where Aaron is mentioned in the Quran, we see that there are 20 uh, different uh, references to Aaron in the, in the Quran. And if we look at the chapter numbers where uh, Aaron is mentioned 20 times, this is the list of the chapter numbers. Now, if we take a, a sum of all of the chapter numbers, look what happens. The, the sum is actually 377. Now, this is a rare result. Uh, because the, if, we, if, we, if, if the name Aaron occurred only in the first 20 chapters, we'll get the smallest total possible. And if it occurs in the last uh, 20 chapters, we will get the largest total possible. And the difference between those two totals is uh, something like 1,861. So there are 1,861 possibilities uh, for the, the total of the chapter numbers in which uh, the name Aaron occurs. And, and for it to be 377 precisely, uh, this is just one possibility out of the 1,891. 
Uh, so what accounts for this? This is a rare um, event. And if this was the only event, we would say, uh, well, that's a rare, uh, it's rare and interesting, but uh, it's just a matter of chance. Uh, but when we will see now that there are four instances where this number 377 will pop up, uh, this is one and another three to come, uh, then we realize that this is a complex phenomenon in the Quran, and uh, the probability of it is hard to calculate, but we can see how remote it is. Because even if you said uh, that, uh, you know, let's not go with one out of 1891, because there is some selectivity involved and so on. We're homing in on those chapters. Uh, we, we are we're doing some work to find this, this number. Uh, so it's not pure probability. So, But even if we said the, the probability is not one out of 1,891, or not even one out of 1,000, let's say the probability is one out of 100. Uh, now, if we have four of these phenomena, and that is the repeated uh, probability of each one, then uh, the combined probability of all of these is one out of 100 times, one out of 100 times, one out of 100 times, one out of 100, one out of 100 times uh, to, to the power of four. And, and the result of that is one out of 10 million. It, it is a one followed by eight zeros. So we're dealing here with a very complex phenomenon that, point, phenomenon that points to the Quran as uh, a, the word of God. Now, we go to the 28th chapter of the Quran, which is one of those that we listed previously, where the name Aaron occurs. And we, we notice that the 28th chapter of the Quran is, is saturated with the story of Moses and Aaron. And we can see the verse numbers where the names Moses and Aaron are, are mentioned, and the verse numbers are lift, listed on, on the left. On the right, I list uh, the number of words that occur in those verses. And when that column is totaled up, that uh, uh, turns out to be 377 also. So uh, who counts the words and in, in, in what you're writing in a particular uh, verse? Uh, you, you might have word do for you the, the count for the entire essay that you're writing. But if we ask how many uh, words were in a particular paragraph, you can find that too using word. Uh, but mentally, you probably would not have that uh, information in your mind. Uh, so what accounts for this? Who is keeping count of all of this? Muslims would say this is uh, of divine origin. It is God that is doing this. In my next slide, I look uh, at the name Aaron, not only in chapter 28, but I look at four chapters together, uh, which are related by the fact that each one of them begins with uh, what we call a mysterious letter. And in this case, the letter is Ta. So we have Surah 20 beginning with Taha, Surah 26 beginning with uh, Ta uh, Sim Mim, Surah 27 beginning with Ta Sin, and uh, Sur uh, Surah 28 begin beginning with uh, Ta uh, seem meme. And then we look at the verse numbers where Aaron is mentioned in these four chapters. And the, the tally of those verses, the total of that uh, of the verses in, in which uh, Aaron is mentioned comes out to be 377 again. Uh, so that's our third example. And the fourth example is a little bit more complex. And uh, uh, I'd like you to bear with me here for a moment. So here we have on this slide, Musa and Harun, I've started to call them by their Arabic names now, so uh, Moses and, and Aaron. Uh, so I've listed the four surahs in, this, in this, um, this set of four surahs that begin with the mysterious letter Ta. They're surah 26, 27, 20, uh, surah 20, 26, 27, and 28. 
And the, the frequency of Musa, how many times does the name Musa occur in that surah? I've logged the frequencies there. And Harun, how many times does Harun occur in these chapters? I've logged the frequencies there. And because uh, Harun occurs uh, zero times in, in Surah 27, uh, that zero is logged there as well. Now, the time for the, the tally. When we look at the, to the sums of those two columns, we see that Musa occurs 46 times and Harun uh, seven times. Now, nothing is proven yet with regards to our 377, but we're getting there. So let's go to the next slide to remind you uh, that these are the numbers we're dealing with. The total for Moses and Aaron is 377. And we have also the individual uh, letter values, uh, the, the, the numerical values for each name, uh, 116 for Moses, 261 uh, for Aaron. Now, all of these numbers will now play out in the finale here. Um, it, what we'll find that there is an elegant formula emerging uh, showing that Musa plus the frequency of Musa plus Aaron plus the frequency at uh, times the frequency of Aaron equals 19 times uh, Musa plus Aaron. So th that's an elegant formula. And uh, for this to occur, um, the, the, the probability of this is rather uh, remote. Uh, now, if I put it that in numerical terms uh, on the right, uh, we see 116, which is the numerical value of Musa, uh, times uh, 46, the frequency, uh, plus 261, which is the numerical value of Aaron, times the frequency, which is 7. That equals to 19 times 116 plus 261. And uh, if we analyze that further, we see that the total of that is uh, 7,163, and 7,163 turns out to be 19 times 377. So our 377 occurs again now for the fourth time. The probability of all of these occurring by mere chance is, is rather remote. And uh, I would say that all of this points to the Quran uh, as, as the word of God. It, no human being uh, uh, counted this to, to make it come out like this. In fact, this information was not known until it was discovered about 50 years ago, less than 50 years ago. And uh, for more information on this, you can go to two uh, websites that are very good with dealing with this, but one particular website on which I've, uh, uh, it's more pertinent to this information is islamnoon.com. Islam and noon like the high uh, noon of day, um, islamnoon.com. And you can download, uh, uh, go to the English version of that site. Most things are in Arabic, but you can download some English uh, um, studies and this uh, one of them will give you this detail. So that uh, brings me to the end of that uh, slideshow. I'll just uh, take stock of how much time I have remaining. Looks like I have just about two minutes uh, remaining for uh, the rest of what I wanna say. Finally, I want to say then that uh, Jesus and whom be peace is important to Muslims. And when we get into dialogue with our Christian friends, naturally our Christian friends will want to know on what basis do you uh, say that you believe in, in Jesus? So we say on the basis of the Quran. Our Christian friends might say, but wait a minute, some aspects of the Quran, uh, the Quran's presentation of Jesus uh, do not uh, comport well with uh, historical studies. And we would say that, in fact, if we analyze the matter, we will find uh, that the Muslim presentation of Jesus Jesus, though it is a uh, it is a theological one, the Quran uh, is uh, it, it, it gives us a theological 
uh, insight into Jesus, though that is a theological insight, nonetheless, it, to, to Muslims, uh, I hope that I'll be, show, be able to show later, uh, this theological insight actually comports uh, better uh, with uh, history than uh, a, a Christian Trinitarian uh, perspective. But not to be contentious, I want to say for the moment that uh, a Muslim is confident and satisfied that because the Quran is the word of God, the theological insight it gives us into Jesus uh, is uh, a proper theological insight. That is the one we wish to go by. And uh, we will uh, reject things which are contrary to what is there in the Quran, or uh, we might find ways uh, of syncretism, what ways just to, to um, show the confluence of ideas. Sometimes things look uh, very different uh, from, from one perspective or the other, uh, but perhaps there is a way of looking at them together. So all, all together, though our topic is for, uh, framed as a dichotomy, it's either Jesus of the Quran or Jesus of the Bible, we will find that in many things we have much in common, and uh, Muslims and Christians believe equally in Jesus, though in different ways. And uh, we will uh, look, listen to what uh, my friend Kabin has to say about this. And uh, I'll be taking notes and I'll be glad to uh, offer my comments on, on his presentation. So I think that's the, all the time that I have. I wanna thank you all for your patient listening and I'll speak with you again. You bet. Thank you very much, Dr. Ali, for that opening statement. And we will kick it over to Cobain for his opening statement. Want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. With that, Cobain, thanks so much. The floor is all yours for your opening statement as well. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Shabir for coming to this debate, and I want to thank James for providing this forum, because time is limited. We're going to get right into the substance of the matter. I want to talk to you about the historical credibility of the gospel's portrait of Jesus. We'll get into the numerical stuff and the uh, relevance of that in the rebuttal section, but I want to consider first the nature of our principal sources. When we evaluate a question like the origin of the gospels, the issue that we should consistently have in mind is the simplicity of our explanatory model relative to the shape of the historical data, whether that data is the internal evidence of the gospel text or the external evidence of early witnesses to their origins. Whether or not we can construct an historically possible scenario where the Gospels are anonymously produced by non-eyewitnesses, the real question, especially in inductive disciplines like history, is whether the evidence we have takes the shape we would expect if the four biblical Gospels were produced anonymously by non-eyewitnesses. As M.B. Thompson points out in his article, The Holy Internet, the evidence from the first two centuries suggests a degree of integration and cheap, safe travel across the Roman Empire and across the network of churches that was not matched again for centuries, possibly not until the late Middle Ages and Renaissance era. Contrary to the imagined world of form and source critics, the actual textual data from early Christian texts undermines powerfully the idea that the Jesus tradition was transmitted orally and anonymously over generations before it came into the textual world of the canonical gospels. Moreover, as Larry Hurtado has shown in recent scholarship, the actual character of the early Christian manuscript tradition reveals a powerful and striking unity of distinctive qualities. Though the vast majority of our second century texts are written in scrolls, over 70% of second century codices, that is what we basically would call a modern book, are of Christian origin. 
It appears that across the entire network of Christian churches, Christian scribes pioneered the use of the codex. Moreover, the first three centuries reveal the widespread and now universal use of what scholars call the nomina sacra, where names associated with God and Jesus would be specially abbreviated and underlined in order to accentuate the sacred character of the divine name, which also has implications for the divinity of Jesus. Such scribal treatment of divine names has its closest parallel, not in Hellenistic culture, but in Judaism. And this suggests an integrated culture of manuscript transmission where a certain family of texts, that is the biblical texts, were treated as especially sacred from a very early period. As Michael Kruger has argued, this indicates a striking unity of the Christian world and an extremely early concept of canonical normativity. In the world where the four canonical gospels circulate anonymously and are given their titles later to buttress their divine authority, would one expect them to be attached to these authors? The first and the most popular of the gospels is attributed by tradition to Matthew. The association of a gospel with Matthew in our extant sources is first explicitly made in Papias. Matthew's claim to fame as an apostle, however, is the very fact of his being associated with a written gospel. Similarly, early Christian scribes whose goal was to link their anonymous gospels with a normative authority, would have virtually no reason to select Mark as the author of the second gospel. Now, Papias identifies the gospel of Mark as connected with the preaching of the apostle Peter. And Papias himself was intimately connected within the early apostolic circle and was a disciple of John the apostle. Latinisms in the text corroborate the early association of the Mark's gospel with the city of Rome and Peter's preaching therein. Now, the third gospel was traditionally written by an author who, again, status is linked to his tradition of being uh, uh, linked with the authorship of the gospel himself. He's not remembered as a disciple of the historical Jesus, and his principal association with an apostle is Paul, who, of course, was not a disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry. While Irenaeus is the first to list the four gospels explicitly by their traditional authors, there exists no competing tradition, either in our external evidence or in the manuscripts themselves. Despite the common claim that the Gospels are internally anonymous, these manuscripts, which have the beginning of the text, all associate the four Gospels with these traditional authors. If they are anonymous, they are only anonymous in the sense that any writing which does not begin with, hello, I'm John Doe, the author of this text, is anonymous. Most of my writing would be anonymous by the standard. It's easy to claim that the texts are anonymous if we decide that the very portion of the manuscript identifying our authors doesn't count. Relative to the data in hand, by far the most simple and parsimonious explanation identifies the four Gospels as written by their traditional authors. And if this is the case, these four Gospels represent extremely early tradition coming from the most intimate acquaintances of the historical Jesus. Moreover, the closely integrated network character of the earliest Christianity and its universal veneration of the apostles is strongly at odds with any model claiming that these gospels would have been contested by the historical apostles of the historical Jesus if they were acquainted with their content. That they are taken to be normative at such an early date across the Christian world is best explained if they represent historical information of the highest value. Now let's look at what's inside these four texts. The four gospels are consistent with each other in remarkable and non-ostentatious ways, indicating that the portrait being presented is rooted in the actual historical Jesus. A detail in one gospel explains in subtle ways details in the other gospels. Things that appear to be contradictory actually come into sharp focus as intelligible only in light of very specific information about the local geography of the region. Moreover, the gospels get things right that would be nearly impossible to fake. 
Indeed, these tests can only be made because of contemporary historical tools allowing us to collate and analyze data from a wide variety of contemporary texts. Imagine living 2,000 years ago and producing an invented narrative from 38 years prior. Frequency of personal names fluctuates consistently in both time and place, and the world of the narrative is not the production context for the actual authorship of the four Gospels. That is, where the history happened is not where the texts were written. Compiling data from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other contemporary sources, Richard Balcom notes that the relative frequency of names, even when considering only Jews, differs vastly from place to place. The most common names in Palestine were not the most common names in Egypt or in Libya. And yet, despite being produced outside Palestine, the four Gospels represent very exactly the appropriate proportion of names relative to its purported geographical and chronological setting. When one considers that this question can only be meaningfully asked because of modern scholarly tools, the idea that the evangelists would have been able to produce this correlation artificially is revealed as absurd. Similarly, their knowledge of the topography is extremely accurate. John chapter 2, for example, describes a journey down to Capernaum from Cana, reflecting the actual higher elevation of Capernaum relative to Cana. The same language is used accurately in describing the relationship of Jerusalem to Jericho. And when Jesus prophetically condemns Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he condemns three obscure communities which are actual first century Palestinian towns. Chorazin is archaeologically known as being on the road to Bethsaida and existing two miles north of Capernaum. This contrasts with later non-canonical gospels, which name only the largest and most well-known cities. And the canonical gospels mention about 70 to 80 place names each. They consistently reflect accurate knowledge of the topography. Other connections among the gospels reflect a whole that is larger than the minds of the authors and is rooted in historical reality. For example, only John's gospel provides information permitting us to see the length of Jesus' ministry as three years through its three Passovers. Yet in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a riddle of a man who had been seeking fruit on the tree of Israel for three years to explain his own action. These texts are unified in terms of an external world transcending literary creativity. Mark's gospel identifies the grass in the feeding of the 5,000 as green, a distinctive feature of the region only in the springtime around Passover. Yet it's only John's gospel which specifies the Passover context of the miracle. In Luke 9, the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida, and according to John 12, a passage unrelated to the feeding, Philip is from Bethsaida. And that explains why in John 6, Philip or Jesus asks Philip where they might go to buy bread. The way in which the Gospels explain each other underscores the reality that they transcribe very precisely actual history in both the Synoptics and John's Gospel. Jesus identifies himself with the vine in John alone, and we know from archaeological data that there was, in fact, a vineyard that they would have been passing on the path they were traveling to Gethsemane. Mark's Gospel tells the story of Herod's execution of John the Baptist in some detail, reflecting either intimate awareness of his death or an inventive mind. But it's in Luke's gospel, in 8 verse 3, that Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was a disciple of Jesus, and we're told that she was Herod's household manager, thus explaining how this information was available to Mark. In Jesus' trial, narrated in the synoptics, he's accused of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Yet it's only in John that we learn of Jesus saying that he would rebuild the temple in three days if it were destroyed at the beginning of his ministry. 
The garbled memory of an authentic saying of Jesus that is misquoted in his trial provides explanatory context unifying the stories of the four gospels and John together. Observe how these undesigned coincidences exist in both the natural and the miraculous aspects of Jesus's ministry and hold true both before and after his resurrection from the dead. For example, when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these others do? We're given an explanation for why he asks that only in the synoptic gospels where Peter says, even if the others fall away, I will not. Third and finally, I want to consider the portrait of Jesus that emerges from the Gospels in the terms of what N.T. Wright calls the criterion of double dissimilarity and similarity. Jesus carried out his ministry in the historical world of first century Judaism and must make sense in that context. Yet he also gave birth to an early Christianity which had specific characteristics. He has to make sense to someone in the first century Jewish world without being identical to it, and he has to make sense as the explanation for why early Christianity took the specific form that it did. The Jesus of the Gospels acts specifically in ways which only make sense against his historical context and likewise explains why early Christianity believed the things that they do without speaking in the language of the earliest Christianity. Consider the fact that in early Christianity, we know from the book of Acts, from the writings of Paul, that the principal controversy in the earliest period was about circumcision of Gentiles. Now, if the evangelists felt free to invent material in order to give them a leg up in their theological controversies, why does Jesus never once address this controversy? But he addresses all sorts of things which were not, in fact, controversial in the early church. The theology of the New Testament emerges out of the teaching of Jesus at, and makes sense in the context of his historical ministry, and yet it also explains why early Christianity spoke the language that it did without merely being a retrojection of first century Christianity. In both the Synoptics and John, Jesus' teaching about his own redemptive work is couched in the language of first century Jewish expectation. He organizes his followers around 12 apostles, representing the focal point of the reintegrated 12-tribe kingdom with himself as its Lord. His miracles constitute enacted riddles about the nature of his work, which coheres with the substance of Christian teaching, but departs in its mode of elucidation. Like the cursing of the fig tree, an enacted parable about the judgment of Israel, Jesus' healing of lepers, cripples, and the woman with an outflow of blood are more than demonstrations of power. Indeed, they, instead, they specifically identify Jesus as the focal point of divine presence and the one who ritually purifies those associated with death and ritually purifies them so that they might have access to the temple, which is what, which is what purity is all about. He enacts parabolically the reality of his divine identity, but he does so in a way which only makes sense in the world of first century Judaism. With the public ex exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of God, there was no more reason to be cryptic, and so the New Testament proclaims his divinity openly. But in the Gospels, Jesus teaches his parables so that only those with open ears and soaked in Israel's scriptures will understand. Controversies about healing on the Jewish Sabbath are present in both the Synopsis of John, and they only make sense in the setting of Jesus's ministry. Not only would this debate have been foreign to the earliest Gentile Christian communities, but it represents an earlier period in Jewish halakhic discussion than that found in post-7080 text. The Jerusalem Talmud, for example, describes how there were multiple parties of Pharisees, and indeed the Jerusalem Talmud condemns most of these Pharisaic parties as a curse because of their legalism. Uh, the use of parables is pervasive in the Synoptic Gospels, and yet as a teaching style, it is essentially absent from the Gentile Christian literature, but present in a wide variety of Jewish literature. 
The epistles and the apocalypse speak openly about Jesus' atoning death, uh, his, the new birth, and the consequent presence of the Holy Spirit among them. They consistently identify Jesus as Kurios or Lord, translating the Tetragrammaton, the divine name, uh, from the Old Testament. And yet when Jesus speaks about his coming death, he does so in riddles, like in the parable of the tenants, where the guardians of the field kill the son of the master who owns the field. In this parable, Jesus' death is presented essentially as that, uh, like a martyr, uh, like the Israelite prophets. It doesn't openly uh, elucidate a detailed theology of atonement. It makes sense as something the historical Jesus would have said, not as something which the Gentile Christians would make up. Likewise, when Jesus is accused of blasphemy at his trial, he's accused in the context of his combination of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Daniel 7, he is the son of man, and yet, according to Psalm 110, he is seated. He thereby identifies himself with the seated figure of Daniel 7, and in combining these two texts, he uses a well-known Jewish method of exegesis. It's cryptic relative to the later Christian literature, but it makes sense in Jesus's own context. In a variety of ways, from a multitude of perspectives, the simplest way of explaining the actual data of the Gospels is by identifying them as accurate historical records, memoirs of the apostles which record things that happened in first century Judaism. The real Jesus is the Jesus of the Gospels. Thank you very much for that opening, Cobain, as well. And folks, we will jump into the rebuttals now. These are going to be 10 minutes for the first set, and then eight minutes for the second set before open dialogue. So we'll kick it over to Dr. Ali, 10 minutes. The floor is all yours. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. I will just try to uh, restart my clock here so that I can um, follow the time with you, James. Um, okay. So, uh, Kabin, thank you for that uh, delightful presentation. And uh, I learned a lot by listening to it. Uh, you, you quoted some conservative scholars. Um, whom I read from time to time, and it was uh, good to hear you uh, present their thoughts as well, like um, uh, Hortado and uh, Richard Malcolm and uh, N.T. Wright uh, as examples. And uh, you mentioned a lot of the historical um, accuracy of uh, a lot of the information that, that is there in the Gospels that are known to be historically accurate uh, from the point of view of these conservative scholars, and I appreciate all of that. Uh, Muslims are taught in the Quran to respect the Gospels, to respect the Bible, and uh, we do not want to uh, go uh, overboard in our uh, critical assessment of, of the Bible. Uh, but uh, in a debate like this, uh, naturally, we, we have to uh, look at another uh, angle as well. So the other angle I, I would like to present, Cobain, if you will allow me, is that uh, there, there are uh, indications that uh, the, the Gospels do not present just the real Jesus, as you uh, have uh, pointed out. Uh, I refer to uh, a, a book by uh, John Bowden. Uh, his book is entitled Jesus, the unanswered questions. And he has shown that, uh, in fact, the, the Gospels, one to another, uh, modify the information regarding Jesus, especially information regarding uh, the uh, theology. Uh, so the the what was Jesus' own view of himself? What did he preach uh, of a theological nature? We can see a, a development as we go from Mark to John. Now, uh, Bruce Metzger, who is also a fairly conservative scholar in his book, The New Testament, Its Background, Growth, and Content, has given many examples to show that if we go from 
uh, Mark to Matthew and Luke, there is a development. And then other scholars have shown, even Baucom in his book, Jesus, uh, a short introduction, has pointed out that sometimes the information in the gospel according to John is not uh, you know, to be taken uh, exactly as precise uh, history, especially when we're dealing with uh, things like the speech of Jesus and so on. So there's definitely a development as we go from Mark uh, to Matthew and Luke, and then eventually to John's gospel. But let's uh, highlight some of the ways in which uh, Matthew and Luke have uh, modified the information as they got it from Mark, because most uh, scholars believe that Mark was the uh, first of the four Gospels to be written. Uh, you mentioned the uh, bleeding of, of this woman who came to be healed by Jesus. Now, in Mark's Gospel, uh, Jesus felt the power going out of him, and he kept looking around to see who touched him. Uh, but in, in Matthew's Gospel, by comparison, Jesus knew immediately who it was. Uh, in, in the gospel, according to Mark, we have uh, similarly Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree because, as Mark says, it was not the season for figs. Uh, but in Matthew's gospel, uh, that statement about it not being the season for figs is, uh, is not uh, there. And so in Mark's gospel, we get the impression that uh, it was a good tree. Had it been the season for figs, it might have grown uh, uh, fruit. Uh, but Jesus apparently didn't know that it was not the season for figs, and so he cursed it, uh, not realizing that uh, the, it was no fault of the tree that it had not uh, uh, fruit for, for Jesus to eat when he was hungry at that time. So we see in instances like this, one after another, uh, that the Gospels modify the information to heighten uh, the, the divinity of Jesus, uh, to uh, heighten his, uh, his knowledge and his power, and, and so on. Now, when we go from uh, Mark to John, we see even a larger jump. Uh, I have with me here a book somewhere within reach, yes, uh, uh, by Adela and Yarbrough, Yarbrough Collins, in which they point out, uh, it, the book is entitled G King and Messiah uh, Son of, as Son of God. Now, they point out that uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus is not uh, a pre-existent figure, and yet in, in the gospel according to John, he's a pre-existent figure. So in, in, in the first synoptic gospels, Jesus might be exalted into heaven, uh, but in, in John's gospel, by contrast, he comes down from heaven, and he is going back to where he, he came from. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus naturally prays to uh, be saved from the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, uh, let this hour pass uh, from me yet not my will, but yours be done. So he finally um, uh, concedes to the, uh, yields to the will of the Father. But in John's gospel, this was Jesus's will from the start, where he, you know, he enters Jerusalem and he says, now what shall I pray? Uh, Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this uh, reason that I came to this hour. So John is presenting Jesus as uh, a a powerful being, one who knows what he's about, and he is ready to take uh, this on. Uh, in fact, he came into the world resolutely to do exactly this, so that his crucifixion is uh, more his exaltation. He is going up, like uh, ironically, John wants to present that Jesus going up onto the cross is actually on his way to heaven. So it's all good news here. Uh, the, the story has changed for, as we go from, from Mark to Matthew and Luke and then to uh, John. In John's gospel, one of the most major changes is uh, presenting Jesus as the word of God. That, that Jesus is the logos of God is unheard of in the first uh, three gospels. Uh, but John's gospel has it in the prologue that uh, Jesus is the 
uh, word of God who existed from the beginning. And in some sense, it looks like he is God or a begotten God. Uh, that, that needs some further elaboration. But this whole discussion is, does not come out of the synoptic gospels, but out of the gospel according to John. Then we notice that uh, in, in the gospel according to John, there is more of a heightening of uh, the uh, proofs for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, previously, uh, Cobain, you, you, you spoke about the reliability of the manuscripts and how the information was passed on and so on and widely known. But that's not the impression we get, especially when we go to the narratives regarding the discovery of the empty tomb and uh, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. We find here a wide divergence between all of the Gospels, among all of the Gospels. Uh, so in in Mark's gospel, uh, the, we have the surprising ending in chapter 16, verse 8, in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, uh, with the women fleeing from the scene, telling no one uh, what they saw because they were afraid. And, uh, but, but that leaves uh, lacking any description of an actual appearance of Jesus to his disciples. There is a promise that he will appear in Galilee, but not the actual description of that uh, in manifestation. Uh, but then in Matthew and, and Luke, we have this uh, delivered. In Matthew, the, the disciples go to Galilee and they see Jesus on a mountain and they worship him, but they doubt it. In, in Luke's gospel, uh, they are told not to, not to leave the city. So the appearances are in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. And we know it cannot have been both at the same time, especially given the distance between Galilee and, uh, and Jerusalem. And you spoke about the geography. So this is uh, a, a problem. And then in John's gospel, uh, we have a, 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 a two-part narrative where in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus appeared to the 11 on, on the evening of, uh, of Easter day. Uh, and uh, John's gospel, by contrast, says that at that time, uh, Thomas was missing. Uh, so it looks as if John has deliberately removed Thomas in order to have another narrative in which uh, Thomas, after having doubted for a while, uh, will now get the proof from Jesus and be able to say, my Lord and my God. Uh, so, so John has uh, truncated that or, or, or split it into two narratives in order to create this uh, drama. And we have uh, the, the beloved disciple that appears in John's gospel. So if we talk about the people who were there witnessing Jesus and telling us what he was about, uh, John wants to emphasize that there was an eyewitness that was there, the one that John is referred to, referring to as the one whom uh, Jesus loved. But uh, this disciple it does not seem to appear at crucial points in the Synoptic Gospels where would we would expect him to uh, appear. So it looks like uh, John may have invented this uh, uh, figure, uh, perhaps as a literary device to show what an ideal disciple of Jesus would do and how this ideal disciple of Jesus would behave. So that when Peter and this beloved disciple run to the tomb, it is the beloved disciple that uh, believed. But notice the oddity in John's uh, narrative here that uh, till this time they did not know uh, the uh, scriptures that Jesus was to rise from the dead. Now, why wouldn't they know the scriptures? Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, by contrast, uh, Jesus was predicting time and time again, three large predictions, uh, that uh, he will rise uh, from, from the dead after uh, three days of his uh, crucifixion. So why, that is not in John's Gospel, and John's Gospel doesn't seem to agree that that is uh, what has, in fact, happened. 
the dating of the crucifixion is also different in John's gospel. So we find that in many different ways, uh, the gospels are not really presenting the real Jesus. They are presenting the Jesus that has been interpreted by these various writers over time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ali. We will kick it over to Cobain for his 10-minute rebuttal as well. Cobain, the floor is all yours. Oh, you might be on. You might be on mute. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Uh, thanks, Shabir, for that um, engagement. Uh, I want to begin by talking a little bit about his opening statement, and I want you to notice that in the opening statement, almost all freight was placed number one on the Quran status as the word of God, and the case for the Quran status as the word of God was based on. Now, what I want you to understand about this is that the idea of a book which is from the mouth of God and whom we know is from the mouth of God because it has characteristics that we can't explain in terms of normal human psychology, this is something that you will find across a wide range of religious traditions. Take, for example, the Urantia book. The Urantia book is very sophisticated, and yet its sophistication seems totally unknown to the person who actually dictated the Book. The Book of Mormon, likewise, is uh, it has similar characteristics. It has a remarkably internally consistent geography. You can actually create a map of its inner geography. It even has numerological figures, uh, features which recent LDS scholars have attempted to make the case for, and yet it was dictated in a very short period of time. Now, what I want to suggest to you today is that, number one, biblical numerical features have similar uh, qualities as to those suggested in the Quran. And number two, the case for the divine origin of the Quran based on numerical figures is entirely predicated on considering those numerical features relative to chance. And that is the big problem. We know that early Islam was engaged with the Jewish world. It, uh, it reflects Jewish features, consider Jewish uh, circumcision, consider some of the dietary laws. We know that Muhammad interacted with Jewish communities. We know that in the 10th, 11th century, Islam continued to be engaged with Judaism. Maimonides had a very positive view of Islam. And the thing is that if you study Jewish literature in the Middle Ages and before, gematria is not just a feature of the Tanakh. It's not just a feature of the biblical text, but it's actually a feature that is in their rabbinic literature. This was a literary device which was used to craft sophisticated designs. If you look at some of the poetry of C.S. Lewis, scholars are still studying that poetry at, to look at its remarkable features, its craftsmanship, its chiastic patterns, and so on and so forth. The chronology that Lewis provides for the history of Narnia is also very sophisticated. It has 49 or 7 times 7 years in terrestrial time, and in Narnian time, it is 365 times 7, which, of course, is the length of a year times 7. And what I'm suggesting to you is even if we grant everything that Shabir has said about the craftsmanship of the Quran, its gematria, its numerical features, these are features that we know exist in literature, which we don't consider to be divinely inspired, to be the word of God. 
In fact, it is a problem to assume that the range of possible literary productions uh, is basically captured by what we're familiar with today, where we have very uh, sophisticated equipment, we can uh, type things up, we can edit it like that, and we write quite a bit. But in antiquity, lengthy texts could be memorized. Lengthy texts were enunciated entirely from memory, and these devices were, among other things, devices to help the speaker remember. So I'm not granting that everything Shabir said about the craftsmanship of the Quran is in fact true, but the big problem is that his case connecting it to the word of God, which is the, you know, the essential character of his case, that if it has these devices, then it is the word of God. There are several more steps in between. Now, I want you to consider some of the features that are in the Bible. In the uh, 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 Bible Pentateuch, uh, the Tetragrammaton, yad heh vav -Hey, it has a numerical value of 26. And in the Tanakh, there are 70 times 26 references to the divine name, to the Tetragrammaton. In the first four chapters of Genesis, a god is referred to by various names, again, exactly 70 times. Uh, in the first chapter of Genesis, you have the first verse is a, has a gematria of 2,701, which is 73 times 37, which are the standard and ordinal values of chakma or wisdom, respectively. And 73 and 37 uh, are mirrors. You know, if you invert 37, you'll get 73 and vice versa. And these two are actually primes as well. It's the 21st prime and the 12th prime, respectively, one of the only numbers which is uh, a mirror, both in its prime value and in its standard value. Uh, God speaks 35 times in Genesis chapter 1, uh, and uh, interestingly, uh, God, uh, God's speech in Genesis, uh, and God said to them, is used exactly seven times, and in every one of the four Gospels, Jesus said to them is used the same number of times. And there are multiple variations of Jesus said to them. Each one of those are used seven times. If you look at uh, a book by a guy named Cassio, Numerical Features of Scripture, if you look at his book, Repetition in the Bible, or you look at C.J. Labuchin, you will find these devices used across the scriptures. Genesis 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, the first section of the book has a gematria of exactly 110,601. That's 110,000 plus 601, which is the 110th prime number. And then the last verse of Genesis names Joseph's age of death as 110. The gematria, the numerical value of Joseph's name is 156, if I recall correctly, and it's used exactly 156 times in the book of Genesis. My point being that human literary craftsmanship uh, has produced texts with these features across history. And one doesn't need to suggest that they, in the Quran, it's chance uh, in order to explain their presence, if they are indeed present. Now let's talk a little bit about what Shabir said about the Gospels. Uh, he said that Jesus in the Gospel of John, he knows he's going to death, uh, yet in the synoptics, he prays to be saved from death. And yet in the synoptics, Jesus repeatedly prophesies his death and resurrection. Indeed, this constituted another argument Shabir used, which is that the disciples should have known the resurrection was going to come because he prophesied his death and resurrection. But these two points are in tension with each other. If John's contrast with the synoptics is that Jesus always intended to go to death in the Gospel of John, yet the synoptics he didn't, then one can't base an argument on his prophecies of his death and resurrection. Uh, indeed, in the uh, 
uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He prophesied to Peter that he was going to die in Jerusalem. Uh, he says that John has Jesus as the word of God, but in the synoptics, Jesus is not presented as divine in this sense. If you look at Richard Hayes's work, you will see that repeatedly in the synoptic gospels, Jesus's uh, words and his actions are couched in terms of the prophetic portrait of the God of Israel. In Luke's gospel, Jesus's words are described as coming from the wisdom of God, which is a way of talking about the logos, talking about the word of God. At the end of Luke's gospel, the resurrection appearance on the road to Emmaus, where they didn't know who it was until the very end when they ate with him, that is actually based on the story found in uh, Judges chapter 6 and 13, where the angel of the Lord who has the name of the Lord in him, who is called sometimes the word of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came, he made an announcement, and then they discovered that it was the angel of the Lord only when they had a sacrificial meal with him. Uh, he says that in Mark's gospel, we have these tensions with the synoptics or with the other two synoptics uh, in terms of Christology, in terms of Jesus's knowledge. Let me say two things. First of all, there is no evidence that Mark's gospel is the earliest. The case for it being the earliest gospel is predicated essentially entirely on its being shorter, which is not a really substantive argument. Indeed, if you look at Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 13, and then Matthew chapter uh, 23, and then Mark chapter 13, you'll find in both cases where Matthew and Mark are parallel, Mark begins with in his teaching. In other words, Mark is telling us that he is being selective with a pre-existing source. In his teaching, Jesus said X, Y, and Z. And we know that there are other teachings of Jesus because they are found in Matthew's gospel, on which Mark is depending. Uh, and likewise, in the beginning of Mark, Jesus's special knowledge, he knew what was in their hearts, is cited explicitly. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Shabir suggests that Jesus appears in Jerusalem and not in Galilee. I will point out to you that in Mark's Gospel, at the ending of Mark, Jesus, uh, Jesus is prophesied to appear in Galilee, and yet we have narrated appearances in Jerusalem. Now, Shabir would undoubtedly say, well, that's because the uh, Mark 16, 9 to 20 is not in the earliest manuscripts. Well, if you look at the actual manuscript families, the only anomalies that we find are in the Alexandrian manuscript tradition. And while the earliest manuscripts themselves, the physical manuscripts, don't have uh, Mark 16, 9 to 20. That's just because those are Alexandrian manuscripts. And Mark 16, 9 to 20 is quoted by church fathers writing decades or even centuries prior to the date of those manuscripts. Likewise, in the Gospel of John, Jesus appears both in Jerusalem and in Galilee, yet the Galilee appearance, which we have narrated, is not the one that we have in the Gospel of Matthew. John was not intending to harmonize, and yet we have evidence that Jesus appeared in both places, underscoring the essential unity of these texts. And we'll switch it over into the next set of rebuttals before we go into open dialogue. These are going to be eight minutes each. And want to let you know, folks, if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button as we have many more juicy, controversial debates coming up that we're very excited about. And with that, Dr. Ali, thanks so much. The floor is all yours for that eight-minute rebuttal. Thank you, James. Thank you, Ben, uh, for that uh, engagement with the points that I raised. You you mentioned a number of interesting points about uh, the the Bible's um, um, features that are uh, numeric in, in design, and I would like to look into that some more. You mentioned the name of an author, maybe Cassian or something like this. I'd like to get his precise name. If not now, then uh, later in our correspondence, because I'd like to read what he has written about this. I would like to say, in short, that uh, from my uh, brief survey of uh, 
uh, what has transpired in the, in the world of the Bible and uh, numerical patterns, uh, what some people have called theomatics, uh, this has been widely rejected by biblical scholars. Now, it may be that biblical scholars know something that I don't know, and, and, and that is so general that applies, it applies also to the Quran. But what I would uh, say is that the patterns that I've shown uh, existing in the Quran, and I've only shown some today, I've shown some in my uh, debate with uh, uh, Jay uh, Smith, uh, with uh, Richard Lucas, and uh, more recently with uh, Anthony Rogers. Uh, so I can't cover everything at once, once because there, is, there are so many. Uh, I would like to see such a detailed and consistent uh, and comprehensive presentation regarding the Bible uh, or some other book to show that uh, the patterns we're talking about uh, can easily appear in others. You have mentioned some points, but they went back by so quickly that I could hardly take the notes uh, regarding them, but I, I would like to study that some more. I, I do know in, in some uh, that uh, the uh, scholars generally do not accept that the Bible is uh, divine on this uh, basis. As for the other books which you mentioned, which are we, we all uh, would, would agree are not divine, uh, like, for example, uh, Chronicles of Narnia uh, and so on, uh, you mentioned some interesting tidbits, but a few interesting tidbits is not the whole case. In the case of the Quran, I've mentioned something of such complexity that spans so many chapters. In fact, one has to think of the whole Quran comprehensively. And you say that this may have served as a mnemonic device, but nobody seems to have known this. It was only discovered in the case of the Quran within the last uh, 50 years. And, uh, and it comes as a surprise. Uh, and and to, to think of how the Prophet Muhammad, if he wanted to do this, uh, to compose a book that he was uh, spontaneously uh, reciting bits and portions uh, of as occasions demanded, and then it comes out to have this remarkable pattern. This is much different from somebody uh, using, as you said, uh, the uh, ancient Jewish writers used dramatria, and they um, composed uh, uh, sophisticated um, works uh, using such patterns. Well, that's deliberate. Uh, but in the case of the Quran, it does not seem that this was deliberate on the part of any human being or collection of human beings. It is just discovered in hindsight. And the best explanation for this is that this is a revelation uh, from the Almighty God. Now, turning to uh, the uh, matters regarding the Gospels, it is indeed clear that in John's gospel, uh, Jesus uh, is a much more powerful individual. It's not only in, in degree, but also in kind. Uh, then Jesus appears in the synoptic uh, gospels. So yes, in the synoptic gospels, he prays to be saved. But in the gospel, according to John, he's saying, I won't pray like that uh, when he enters uh, Jerusalem. And he says, now the, uh, the hour uh, is here. Uh, as for him being the word of God, no. In the Synoptic Gospels, uh, it is not uh, uh, clearly stated that Jesus is the Word of God. You can uh, follow Richard Hayes and other conservative scholars who want to see uh, some indication that maybe there's a hint there. Okay, maybe in Luke's Gospel, uh, he looks like uh, the angel of the Lord, or maybe in Luke's Gospel, it looks like his words are coming from the wisdom of God and so on. But those are all um, inferences, and there is no direct statement to this uh, uh, regard. 
as we find in the gospel according to John. So definitely there is a development there. And uh, as for Jesus's knowledge, clearly in John's gospel, he, he has more knowledge than in the others. In the synoptic gospels, you mentioned uh, the uh, trial scene where Mark uh, speaks about the son of man. In, in that scene and in some other things in Mark's gospels, for example, chapter 8, verse 38, uh, Jesus differentiates himself from that coming son of man. Uh, but in John's gospel, he quickly identifies himself as that son of man. So the, no question remains in John's gospel, whereas some modern scholars will say uh, it looks like Jesus was speaking about someone else other than himself when he on occasion referred to uh, the futuristic eschatological uh, son of man. Now you say that the uh, priority of Mark is based on just simply the idea that Mark is shorter. Uh, no, my friend Cobain, there are several lines of uh, evidence which uh, go to show uh, that Mark is the uh, more primitive of the synoptic gospels. Uh, the most telling feature is that when we go episode by episode, we compare across Mark uh, to Matthew and Luke, we can see that Matthew and Luke have the improved version. Sometimes if we go backwards, we'll, we'll have to say that Mark was corrupting the good grammar uh, of Matthew and Luke, but rather we would say that Matthew and Luke improved the grammar. Matthew and Luke improved the status of Jesus, improved the knowledge of Jesus, improved the power of Jesus, so that if in Mark's gospel, Jesus uh, in his hometown uh, couldn't do any mighty work because uh, of the unbelief of the people, in, in, in Matthew, by contrast, Jesus did not do any work, so he removed uh, the the uh, idea of the inability of Jesus and made it seem like this is the will of Jesus that he, he did not. Uh, so definitely um, there is good evidence that Mark is not only uh, shorter in some episodes, but uh, it, it is more primitive in the presentation of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, now, uh, coming to uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, this is widely regarded uh, by modern scholarship as a later addition into Mark's gospel. And you say, well, okay, well, this bridges the gap and, and shows that Jesus appeared in both places. Well, that's one of the reasons why people would add something. Uh, James White, who has already de also debated with me several times and is well known as a conservative uh, scholar, in his book, The King James Only Controversy, uh, has pointed out that uh, this uh, uh, appendix to Mark's gospel uh, is uh, a later one. It, it does not belong in the most uh, remark, uh, most uh, in the earliest and, and most reliable manuscripts. And one of the telling reasons uh, for thinking that this is an appendix is that uh, some manuscripts have this ending, some have a shorter ending, and then some have a, both the shorter and the longer ending. So why would people be appending endings of a variety if they had the original ending, if Mark chapter 16 verses 9 to 20 was always there, why would somebody add the shorter ending? Uh, rather, it is clear that uh, this is an insertion, a later insertion into uh, Mark's uh, gospel. Uh, looking then at uh, Mark Gospel, ending at chapter um, 16, verse number 8, we can also see how Matthew and Luke have improved the story and why they went their separate ways. In, in Mark, the women say nothing to anyone because they're afraid. And in both Matthew and Luke, they run and go to tell everyone. And then, of course, uh, what we would like to know as Christians uh, uh, become uh, uh, clear that Jesus appears to his disciples to Matthew, uh, to, to in Galilee in Matthew and in Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. They go their separate ways. When they are with Mark, they're together. When they, are, uh, uh, when they don't have Mark, they go their separate ways. You bet. Thank you very much. 
Dr. Ali for that rebuttal. And then we'll go into our final rebuttal before the open dialogue. The floor is set for you at eight minutes. Kabeen, thanks so much. Uh, could you uh, let me pause for a second and take my dog to my brother because he's whining right now and I don't want that to... Yeah, okay. thank you. And while you do that, I'll get a different keyboard because I'm having a problem with mine. Thanks. No worries at all. want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more from our guests, those links are waiting already right now in the description box below. And that includes if you're listening to this debate via the podcast, because all of our debates are uploaded to the podcast, usually within about 24 hours of the debate being live. And so if you're listening via podcast, you can find our guests links there as well. And very excited to let you know a lot of controversial, juicy upcoming debates. If you are sick like us and you like those types of debates, have to let you know, hit that subscribe button. As an example, at the bottom right of your screen, Khalid and apostate prophet debate whether or not ex-Muslims should be punished, as you can see at the bottom right of your screen. And not only that, but we are very excited. We haven't had, we had Hunter Avalon was on in a panel before. However, we have not had him on in a one-on-one -on -one debate before. But this Saturday we will, as Hunter Avalone takes on James Hake of the Hake Report on whether or not systemic racism is real. So you don't want to miss that one as well. And we also want to let you know, folks, whether you be Christian, whether you be atheist, whether you be Muslim, agnostic, you name it, we are hope, hoping that you feel welcomed here. We are glad that you are here. And we want to let you know that our vision is to provide a neutral platform so that everybody can make their case on a level playing field. And so we do appreciate you being with us no matter what walk of life you are from. And also want to let you know we're excited to get people from different of walks, different walks of life continuing in their conversations. And so we're excited to have our guests who make that possible in tonight's debate or discussion. And they, once again, are linked in the description in case you'd like to hear more. And then, Cobain, if you're ready for us, we can kick it right over to you for that eight-minute rebuttal before we go into open dialogue. And then I'll give you a heads up, folks. We have the open dialogue following this last rebuttal then closings, and then the Q&A. If you happen to have any questions, tag me in the live chat, or you can do a super chat that puts the question at the top of the list. And so with that, Cobain, thanks so much. The floor is all yours. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to begin just by saying a couple of words on the ending of Mark. Certainly, most scholars do agree that the ending of Mark is added later. But to be quite frank with you, that means nothing to me. Um, in order for that to constitute an argument for it being a later edition, one has to demonstrate a second premise, which is that the conclusions of most scholars correlates with a high degree of probability with the truth of the matter. Apart from that, it's just a, a, an interesting fact that most scholars dismiss it. And in, in reality, most scholars dismiss it not because they've studied the matter for themselves, but just because that is what they're instructed on. It's a very complicated subject. Everybody has to study their own subtopics. And if you look at a new book on the long ending of Mark by Nicholas Lund, Craig Evans, who's certainly no fundamentalist, reviewing that book, says that this book has led him to dramatically reconsider his view of Mark's gospel. So for those who actually study the evidence as it's been reassessed, uh, they acknowledge the evidence is much stronger than it seems at first. 
Shabir asks, well, if the ending of Mark is indeed original, then why are these, there are these strange features? Why is there a short ending that is sometimes dependent alone or sometimes dependent together with the long ending? Well, the reason that there are those strange features is because it is an anomaly in the Alexandrian manuscript tradition. In fact, every single one of those anomalies exists only in the Alexandrian manuscript tradition. And if you look at the two earliest Alexandrian manuscripts, while the text is not present there, there is a significant gap in the text indicating that both scribes were aware of the existence of the long ending of Mark. But the key point here is that even though our earliest manuscripts, two of them, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Venecanus, don't have the long ending of Mark, the long ending of Mark is quoted by a wide range of fathers across a wide geographical span centuries prior to the existence of those manuscripts. And that's really the key point. We know that it existed centuries before. It is an anomaly only in the Alexandrian manuscript tradition. And the question is, how did this long ending get appended universally in all of these other manuscript traditions? It's simply much easier to explain how it was cut out of one Alexandrian or one manuscript tradition. I have a two-hour interview with a, uh, a textual critic on this subject on my channel. I just don't think the case is very strong. Shabir suggested that one of the reasons that we know that it is a later edition is because Mark has the Jerusalem appearances, even though he narrates Galilee appearances. However, as I noted, John's gospel as well has Jerusalem and Galilee appearances. And yet the Galilee appearance in John is not the Galilee appearance of Matthew. He wasn't intending to harmonize. He simply gives us another piece of evidence that Jesus appeared in both locations. So the evangelists themselves did not see a conflict between these two sets of appearances. That case is made even stronger by the fact that it is in Mark as well, when one looks at the evidence of the manuscripts themselves. Uh, Shabir suggested that while in John, the status of Jesus as the word of God is explicit, in the synoptic at best, it is only implicit. I will point out that the evidence for Jesus as being the logos or the word of God in the gospel of John, uh, the explicit testimony that Jesus is the logos of God is the prologue of the gospel. In other words, we're not talking about the words that are put in Jesus's mouth himself. It's in the prologue to John's gospel. And so if that evidence is going to uh, uh, count as uh, worth something, which it should, um, we should also look at the fact that Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus being identified as Emmanuel, God with us. And it ends with Jesus saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is part of a major theme in Matthew's gospel, where the personal presence of Jesus with his disciples is the embodied presence of Israel's God. So when the Magi coming from the east bring their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 60, where the Gentiles stream to the God of Israel, and they offer him gifts on the altar of his sanctuary. And so is this evidence indirect? Well, perhaps you could call it indirect, but I don't think that makes it worth anything fundamentally less. The question is, is the case for interpreting it in this way strong? Now, concerning the numerical devices in the Bible, Shabir said that most scholars do not accept the divine authorship of the Bible on this basis. And it's true, most scholars don't accept the divine authorship of the Bible on this basis. But my whole argument is that it's not a proof of the divine authorship of the Bible. In fact, these numerical and compositional devices were a feature of uh, uh, literary craftsmanship across a wide variety of cultures. It does not indicate or demonstrate divine authorship. This is one of the elements of literary beauty, which is just found in the scriptures. And in fact, the uh, numerical devices that are found in the Pentateuch uh, are uh, very significant because they cohere with the thematic theme the thematic content of the Pentateuch as well. In other words, in Exodus chapter uh, three and six, where God discloses his name to Moses, the content of that disclosure makes up 16 
or, or sorry, 26 words, which is the numerical value of the Tetragrammaton. The whole Torah is a revelation of the name of the Lord. And so it's 70 times 26. And we already know on independent grounds that 70 and 26 are meaningful. So the question is, if the evidence for the Quran's divine authorship is to be based to such a large degree on these numerical features, one cannot simply calculate its probability relative to chance. Shabir's, uh, the heart of his case for the divine authorship of the Quran depends on these probabilistic calculations entirely relative to chance. But that is something which cannot be taken for granted because we know that these numerical features are not just in the Bible, not just in the Quran, they're in Hellenistic texts, they are in Jewish texts from the Middle Ages onwards, uh, they are still a major feature, and if you look at the theology of the uh, Lubavitcher Chabad movement, uh, gematria is a major theme. Um, so it is not a demonstration of divine authorship, and it's not the same thing as the Bible code, by the way, this is a literary device which is used across a wide variety of sources. John's prologue, for example, has 496 syllables. Its epilogue has 496 words. These themes are absolutely pervasive throughout both Old and New Testament. So they may well be present in the Quran, but we know that early Islam was connected with the Jewish community. And so that is actually not all that extraordinary. Now, Shabir says this has only been documented in recent times, but if you look at uh, uh, Quranic scholarship, uh, there has been a great argument over whether the view of the classical commentators really displays firsthand knowledge of the uh, uh, compositional situation of the surahs. So that is not all that significant in itself, because that is a feature of Quranic exegesis in general, that uh, it's a question whether the classical commentators really have a, a, a we should weight their view um, all that significantly. Uh, he says that uh, in the synoptics, Jesus' standing as the wisdom or word of God is only implicit, whereas in John, it's explicit. But in fact, Jesus himself says with his own lips in the Gospel of Luke, therefore the wisdom of God said, in John, it is the prologue, not Jesus' voice himself, but in Luke, he says himself that he is the wisdom of God speaking. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, I would have gathered you, I would have gathered Israel to myself throughout the period of the Old Testament. This is on the lips of Jesus, and thus is arguably more explicit. He says, well, the angel of the Lord connection with Luke 24 and the book of Judges, that is implicit. Well, you could call it implicit. The question is, is there a substantial case for it being present? And I would argue that, yes, there is a substantial case. There's no reason to dismiss intertextuality as being relevant because it is so important to the various devices that are found in the scriptures. Uh, he says that in John's gospel, the ascension of Jesus is, is said to happen on the cross. But if you look at John's gospel, Jesus says the spirit will not come until he goes to his father. But in fact, at the after the resurrection, Jesus says, I have not yet ascended to my father. This shows that the resurrection Jesus in the Gospel of John is not a literary figment. He displays awareness that there is still an ascension to happen and that the outpouring of the Spirit in full is going to happen after the Gospel of John. So I want to thank Shabir for the robust engagement, and I look forward to doing so more in the future. You bet. We will jump into that open conversation, which will be about 20 minutes, starting the timer. And thank you very much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for open dialogue. Okay, so uh, thank you, Cobain, for that um, uh, excellent uh, final rebuttal there. Uh, so, um, I mean, if you have a question you want to jump right into for me, feel free. But uh, I, have a, I have a few for you because I was taking notes based on what you last said. So, um, you know, I'll be I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you start. Okay, sure. So, um, I, I want to start, start towards the end mm -hmm. of what you were saying. Um, 
so you're saying that, um, you know, I said that the ascension of Jesus was from the cross in John's gospel. Actually, I wasn't saying that. I'm just saying that John is presenting a different idea of the cross, where the cross itself is Jesus's uh, exaltation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the actual ascension um, uh, in John's gospel I agree, coincides with that of the of the synoptics. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the when, when John speaks about the, the cross, like Jesus going to the cross, it, he's going up. Um, mm -hmm. th that's that's the way in which John puts it. Yeah. Well, no, I, I agree with that, that that is a particular theme of John's. I think my point is that that really is not a problem as to its historicity, because number one, the question is John's interpretation of the cross. It's not actually the historical content of Jesus' ministry itself. But number two, it's not mutually exclusive, because even in Mark, when Jesus dies on the cross, it says he breathed his last. And then it's the centurion who says, truly, this was the son of God. The outbreath of Jesus is itself a miniature outpouring of the spirit. And so the interplay between the themes of exaltation and crucifixion we see that in John, there's still a future exaltation to happen after the crucifixion. And in Mark, the death of Jesus is itself a kind of victory. So I don't think it's a contradiction or a problem for historicity. Mm. Uh, just, just a quick point about what you just said, Kabin. Uh, I'm, I'm just uh, curious, uh, the, the word that Mark has used there, uh, because I remember Raymond Brown uh, saying that the, the term used in Mark's gospel it literally means he expired. Uh, mm. Is that is that the same term that you have in mind uh, that you're translating as breathe his last? Yeah, he, he exhaled, expired. I mean, expired. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in Greek, does that have the, the 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 idea he breathed his last, or, or are you conflating that with another gospel? No, no, no. I mean, expired. Even in English, you can see spire, spiration. It has yeah. Uh, do you know of a, of a gospel of a, of a version of the Bible that translates Mark in that way? Expired. Yeah, no, the, uh, breathe his last. Uh, the ESV, I think. I mean, but I, I don't see, uh, I, maybe I'm not following exactly what you're saying, expired. Yeah, I just want to know the precise terminology. Uh, you know, it may not be very important, uh, sure, but, sure. but uh, still, I'm curious. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking into Mark right now in, in Bible Hub. I'm going to Mark chapter 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Mark chapter 15, we open up the uh, Berean uh, literal Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, hmm, death of Jesus uh, as the topic uh, here, and um, it, it's um sorry, it's okay. It says he breathed his last. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's uh, let me go to the uh, Hebrew, the Greek of that, because I, I'm I'm pretty curious about this. It's uh, um, ekpaneo. Okay, but I I don't know the Greek that very well, but I want to see how they translate the Greek. Um, It's um, it's from Peneo. Breathe um, his last. Okay, except nusen. Except nusen. Okay, so it, it does it mean expired as um because expired and breathe his last are, are not the same thing because breathe his last that gives us the impression that that that's his last breath like at all like finally. Oh, but, well, I mean, the, 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 the essential point that I was making was, was not so much about the last bit, but it was about the breathing bit. You know, it's yeah, okay. out of okay, the spirit. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, we don't have to be contentious about that point. Um, uh, I don't have to be contentious about, about that <laughs> point. You're not being contentious. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So, now, um, 
Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Nicholas Lund, uh, mm -hmm. and I would like to get the correct spelling of his name so I can look for his book as well, on, and perhaps the title of his uh, of his book. You don't have to give it to me now. You can give it to me later. But if you want to give it to me now, that that's fine as well. Okay. It's um, Nicholas P. Lund, the original ending of Mark, new case. For Nicholas the P. Lund, and it's mm -hmm. called the original ending? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lund, with, uh, without a D, L-U-N-N. Oh, L-U-N-N. -N. Okay. Yeah. And the original ending. Okay, I'll, I'll look for that. I'm, I'm curious because I, recently I've read a book on the before uh, uh, views on that. So I'm aware that Christian mm -hmm. scholars have different views upon it, uh, right. on that issue. But I'd like to ask your opinion after everything that you have read. Um, why do you think that Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus have both uh, omitted this? Okay. What was going on in the minds of the scribes, do you think? Obviously, it's very hard to reconstruct what happened when a person deleted a passage. So what I would say, first of all, is one can be warranted in saying that a passage was removed without necessarily having an explanation for why it was moved. But second of all, I would say probably the best explanation would be that in Alexandria, uh, you have debates among Gnostic groups as to the nature of the resurrection. And so if a scribe with this particular question or point of view was transmitting Mark's gospel uh, relatively early on, then, and if he was transmitting it simply as Mark's gospel, not part of the collection, then the removal of that would leave very uh, ambiguity as to what exactly resurrection means in that text. But I would say we're warranted in saying that it is present in the original manuscripts simply because it is far more explanatorily simple to explain how it was removed than to explain how in every other manuscript tradition it's universal and how church fathers across the Roman world and beyond are quoting that text very early on. Mm -hmm. So let, let's let's look at it the other way then and say, so let us suppose uh, that, uh, that originally this ending was not there and, and we're wondering now, is there a possible explanation for why it would appear uh, in all of the manuscripts more widely? Can you think of an explanation why it would appear? If it wasn't there in the first place, why people would want to put that in? Well, sure. I mean, one can explain why they would want to put it in. But the question is, is there evidence that it was inserted? I mean, I think mm -hmm. the question of motivation, that is a deeper level question, a second order question. And it's just by its very nature, a more difficult question. So as to the concrete yes, data yes. But of course, have, you know, the textual critics are asking this all of the time, right? As they go line by line. Yeah. Uh, is it more likely that somebody uh, decided to omit this? Or is it more likely that somebody decided to insert this? Yeah, I mean, as far as that methodology goes, I just have a fundamental problem with the way the textual critical methodology proceeds in that respect. I don't think okay. that's a good way to end So you, you hesitated to say what might have been the motivation of those who may want to add it, but let's imagine the scenario where uh, it, it was not there and somebody added it in. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think it would be far-fetched for me to suggest that, as, as scholars do suggest, that uh, perhaps because it ended in such a truncated manner in Mark's uh, rendering, with the women fleeing from the tomb saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid, mm -hmm. and Christians are reading this and saying, but well, what happened? Sure, surely he must have appeared to his disciples like he said mm -hmm. he would. Where, where is the appearance narrative? Like what mm -hmm. happened? People want to know. And, yeah. and you can, uh, is it is it understandable that if it was not there, some people would want to, uh, append a sort of summary narrative, uh, mm. uh, drawing together information from the other Gospels and from Christian tradition more generally. 
Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, one can 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 create a plausible story for a whole variety of things. I mean, if we can imagine that if the Gospel of Matthew lacked a resurrection narrative, I can understand why people would append one to the Gospel of Matthew. The question is simply, does the manuscript evidence warrant that conclusion? And only once we've derived that conclusion, do we look at the second order question, why did this happen? Because I just think that if you just look at the manuscript evidence itself, it's very difficult to justify saying that this was not part of the original uh, manuscript. But I mean, there are all sorts of plausible stories one can tell about how things could be. The question is just what does the concrete evidence suggest as to how it actually was? Hmm. So one of the arguments for Markan priority, um, as I'm sure you're aware, Kobin, hmm. is that uh, when, when Matthew and Luke um, have something in common uh, with each other, Mm-hmm. Um, usually they have it in common with Mark as well, mm-hmm. unless we, uh, unless they, 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 we're dealing with the sayings uh, content, which comes from the Q gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of the, the narrative sequence of events, it looks like, uh, you know, the common element is Mark. Right. Uh, and when Mark is absent, uh, it looks like Luke and, and, and Matthew go their separate ways. So we see that Mark begins with the baptism scene. So from the baptism scene onwards, we see, uh, quite a remarkable consistency in the se- sequence of events between Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. But prior to the baptism scene, we see that Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke uh, have come from two separate directions. They, the, the, birth, the, the, the uh, nativity stories in Matthew and Luke about the birth and early ch- childhood of Jesus, they're very, very different, and some say even irreconcilable. Mm-hmm. And then we see the same phenomenon uh, happening at the end where up to where the women flee from the scene, we can see Matthew and Luke improving that one line, but they were following neck and neck, line by line from Mark, uh, uh, basically, with some remarkable and important changes. And then after Mark chapter 16, verse 8, uh, Matthew and Luke go their separate ways. Right. Matthew goes towards Jerusalem, towards Galilee, and uh, uh, Luke has the disciples stay in Jerusalem where they get this visitation from Jesus. Mm-hmm. So can you see how uh, this is also an argument that mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Mark chapter 16 initially lacked that longer ending? Uh, because that longer ending seems to be conflated with bits of information from Matthew and Luke and other sources. And if, uh, if, if, they, if, Matthew, if Mark had continued the narrative, then it could be expected that Matthew and Luke uh, would also continue in the same vein, and it would not be so widely di- divergent. Uh, okay, so a, a couple of things here. I think, first of all, um, those arguments, while they're often presented as arguments for Mark and priority, all they establish is that Mark is the mediating point for Matthew and Luke. So if one says that Mark uses Matthew for as a source for the order of his pericope, and then Luke uses Mark in turn, Mark is established as the mediating point between the two Gospels. But that doesn't mean that Mark was written prior to the two. And I would say that when we look at the structure of the early church, when we look at the way that it was networked together, and we look at the way that our early patristic witnesses are intimately connected with the firsthand acquaintances of Jesus. We need to privilege the concrete data as to what they say uh, uh, as to the production of the Gospels. And there's not a single witness who argues or who says that Mark is written first. The only possible witness for an order other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though this itself is disputed, is is Clement of Alexandria. Um, And if we took that to be the case, it would be the Griesbach hypothesis, which is that Mark postdates Matthew and Luke. Um, But second of all, uh, I, I don't think the reason that that works as an argument against the long ending is because, first of all, in any of these situations, we always have to privilege the concrete data because one can invent stories as to how a text was produced all the time. As C.S. Lewis once said, you know, I give uh, 
however the biblical critics might be as critics, um, I uh, my problem is with them as readers of, of literature in general, has, having been an author, he says, and looked at very plausible speculations as to how I produced my books, I know how inaccurate those, those would be. So that methodology, I mean, the fact that a methodology is widespread, that it's taken as normative, it, it, it doesn't hold much epistemic uh, weight for me. But, but second of all, we already know that in Mark relative to Matthew and Luke, that that principle doesn't always hold true. For example, in Mark chapter 6, which is related to Matthew chapter 13, uh, there is a parable which is actually unique to Mark's gospel. And I would argue the only other place that parable appears in the New Testament is actually in the book of Revelation, where uh, Jesus puts a sickle in the earth. Um, but I think, again, when we look at the concrete evidence, when we look at, okay, how exactly is Mark related to the gospel of Matthew? We see that in the closest texts, that is uh, Mark 6 to Matthew 13, uh, Mark chapter uh, 13 to Matthew uh, chapter 23 and following, in both cases, Mark says, in his teaching, Jesus says, and then he puts a similar appendage at the end of the pericope. So Mark is telling us that this is selected from a broader uh, a body of teaching. And I, I think we have to very strongly privilege the textual data, the things which are concrete, the things which we can look at directly to stories that may or may not be intuitively plausible to one or another person. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned John 21 um, as uh, having um, also a reference to uh, Jesus appearing in Galilee. And so whereas John 20 has appearances in Jerusalem, now we have appearances in Galilee as well in chapter 21. And so John has it both ways. Um, are you aware uh, that um, you know, some scholars think that John chapter 21 is also an appendix, uh, that this was not right. the original? Yeah, yeah. So the problem with that, actually, I alluded to this in my presentation, though it wasn't in the context of this argument, uh, is that the prologue and the epilogue of John correspond to each other in a literary sense. The prologue is 496 syllables, the epilogue is 496 words. And I'm not arguing that that proves divine origin, but I think it demonstrates that there's a literary relationship which is intentional and it demonstrates the literary integrity of the text as uh, as a whole. I also think that if you look at uh, the Gospel of John and the Apocalypse, I know that that some, some people argue that they're not written by the same author. I think they, they clearly are written by the same author. Um, the literary correspondences between the two demonstrate that John chapter 21 is clearly a part of the integral gospel of John. For example, John chapter 21, when Jesus gathers the 153 fish, um, the gematria of, uh, of 153 is uh, um, uh, an eglim, which in Ezekiel 47, there is a river which goes out from the temple and it gives life to the fish. Um, and then we have the 153 fish there in John chapter 21. And then in the book of Revelation, we actually have the city of God, which comes down from heaven. And it's clearly based on the temple vision of Ezekiel. But there are many, many links between John and Revelation, which I think show that John chapter 21 has to be taken as an integral part of the text. And again, it's about the manuscript evidence, as far as I'm concerned. People can read a text. They say, well, I don't see a reason why this literary feature would be here. Um, but I think it's just jumping the gun to say, well, therefore, it originally wasn't, even though we don't have any manuscript evidence for that. Um, uh, and here's the reason it was later added in. I think we have to take the text as it stands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, you, you, I mean, are, are there any questions you want to ask me? Because uh, yeah. I don't want it to all, all go uh, one way. I wanted to, to, to ask um, one or two things about the actual kind of content of the Quranic portrait of Jesus. Um, in, in the Quran, Jesus is presented as not having claimed to be the son of God. Um, and, and one of the problems that I would have with that is, is it seems to reflect an, um, 
and I pure identification of the Christian idea of son of God, meaning only begotten son of God, which I take to be in the New Testament, but it is derived from the Jewish meaning son of God as um, uh, the messianic king who's anointed. Um, do you think that, that, that this fits well with the kind of language that Jesus would have used in his first century Jewish context? Uh, meaning that uh, was it possible that Jesus, uh, in in his historical context, spoke of himself as Son of God, meaning yeah, something yeah. like Messiah or um, or King? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's an interesting question. As I said, my my belief in in Jesus comes from from the Quran. And uh, not not from the historical reconstructions about who Jesus was. And I admit that the Quran presents a theological uh, understanding of, of Jesus. The Quran is, is not a book about history, but how to conceive uh, of history on theological lines. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if Jesus uh, and some Muslim scholars uh, may, may give credence to this, that it is possible that when Jesus spoke of God as father, maybe it fit with that uh, historical situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that case, maybe he meant it in a, in a uh, metaphorical sense. Uh, in the mm -hmm. Old Testament, we know that uh, a person might be called son of God in a metaphorical sense. Uh, would Jesus have meant it ontologically? Uh, this is where it seems that the Quran uh, draws a line. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, might it be that uh, the writers of the New Testament uh, style some of the sayings of Jesus in such a way as to give the impression that he was claiming ontological uh, sonship with, with God? And of course, mm -hmm. we see that more so in the Gospel according to John, uh, and uh, in, in, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, it might be more the case that uh, the, the sayings of Jesus can be interpreted as uh, him being the Son of God in, in a metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, as to the latter part, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, what, what I'm sure you're aware that the so-called Johannine thunderbolt, you know, no one knows the father except the son, and no one knows the son except the father and the one to whom the son chooses to reveal him. That sounds like, I mean, if you just heard that, you'd think, oh, that's John. It's actually Matthew and Luke, and it shows that Jesus actually spoke that way, even though, because John records Jesus as the word of God, one of his themes is he shows conversations Jesus had, not kind of the stump speech that Jesus would present when he went from place to place, he'd give a sermon, and that, that, that was that. Um, the, the other question that I... I I had, I mean, this is, we haven't really got into the, you know, what does the Quran actually say about Jesus? Is that, is that historically plausible? Um, the way that the Quran speaks of Jesus, um, it seems to me that uh, the language he uses uh, bears witness to a production context, which is clearly, you know, in, engaged with Christianity rather than, you know, we're being told what Jesus actually said. For example, uh, the Quran speaks of Jesus as Messiah. Um, but if I was, engaging with a, and there's a question at the end of this, if I was engaging with, with a Jewish interlocutor, for example, says, why do you think Jesus is the Messiah? I would say, well, because, you know, Isaiah 52, 53, he's exalted to the right hand of God. He's subjecting all things to his feet because of uh, Hebrew Bible prophesies he's making atonement. Uh, and yet the Quran condemns the children of Israel for not um, believing Jesus' messianic identity. What would you say, maybe this is, this is a strange question, but I think it's an interesting one. How would you make the case to, to a Jewish interlocutor that Jesus is the Messiah? I can give you a chance to respond, Dr. Ali, and then we have to actually move on to the closings right after we give you a chance to respond. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure that the Quran condemns them because they, they refuse to believe that he was the Messiah. The Quran does, okay. does refer to Jesus as the Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, but the Quran refers to their uh, boasting that they killed the, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God. So it was their recalcitrance in, in, a, in a broader way and their rejection of the message that is coming uh, from God through Jesus 
uh, to them uh, that the Quran seems to be condemning. With that, we'll jump into the five-minute closing statements, folks. Q&A will follow, so if you happen to have a question, fire it into the old live chat. I'm keeping an eye on the chats, whether you be on Twitch, YouTube, DLive, etc. And with that, thanks so much. Cobain, the floor is all yours. Oh, you, you want Cobain to go for it? I mean, it's fine. Either oh, that's way. right. Um, yeah. So I should have mentioned this because this comes up more and more, is that I know that a more formal standard way is that the person who would start would also be the person who ends. So we can do that. Uh, okay. But it could also be where it alternates all the way through. Because if I remember right, okay. we had Dr. Ali. I'll go with what you suggest, James. Yeah. It's a... Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. What I meant to say is, Dr. Ali, you would be going first. Because usually that's our like our typical way of doing it, is that we just alternate all the way through. And sorry about that. I just had a mental error. So, Dr. Ali, that's the fine. floor is all yours. Okay, yeah. okay sure. So... Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, sorry for that little uh, exchange there. Not that I want to go first, but uh, uh, whatever. I'm flexible and uh, I'm happy to uh, present first and, and let uh, Cobain have the last word here. Uh, but you know what matters at the end is that after everything that we have discussed and uh, we have seen our similarities and our differences and all of that, we need to emerge from this dialogue as friends and we need to work together as Muslims and Christians hand in hand uh, for the betterment of uh, our world. There's much in common that uh, we, we have in our belief system. We, we believe uh, in, in God, the same one God, though uh, Christians and Muslims have two different understandings of him. Uh, we believe uh, in the scriptural revelations that came from God, though we have two different approaches to those scriptures. Uh, we uh, believe in the prophets and messengers of God, including Jesus, uh, though uh, Muslims uh, have uh, an understanding of Jesus that does not allow Muslims to proclaim him uh, as, as God and, uh, and that he died for the sins of the world. But nonetheless, we believe that he was a messenger of God, a prophet, a, mess a, a, a man of God. Uh, and uh, we believe that he was born in a special way and that uh, God uh, aided him to perform many miraculous deeds, including healing the blind, raising the, the, the dead back to life, curing the leper, and so on. And uh, uh, many Muslims believe, based on the Quran, uh, an interpretation of the Quran, that Jesus will come back for a second time. So we have much in common, and we need to celebrate what we have in common. At the same time, we need to understand that uh, Muslims uh, believe in Jesus by virtue of the Quran. It's because Muslims believe that the Quran is the word of God that they're able to believe in Jesus in this uh, way. And uh, I'm not sure that if we take away the Quran, whether Muslims would still be able to believe in Jesus, because then... Uh, we would have the Bible to go with, and uh, the Gospels in particular. And we have seen in this dialogue how difficult it is to uh, believe the actual content of the Gospels. Uh, yes, Cobain has given us a lot of reasons to believe that there are certain historical details and geographical details and names of persons and places which must be accurate. Uh, but uh, a historical fiction is like this, where you, you have a historical setting that is accurate, and then you have a fictional story imposed upon that historical setting. So how much of the Gospels are actually uh, later fiction imposed upon that historical setting? This is the real issue at hand. Did Jesus really claim to be uh, God in an ontological sense? Uh, uh, did he claim to be God in, in uh, son of God in an ontological sense? Uh, did he claim to be the word of God? We see that uh, there are a lot of developments as we go from Mark's Gospel, uh, which uh, uh, most scholars believe today that uh, this is the first of the four Gospels to be written. 
If we go from Mark to Matthew and Luke, we see important developments. Pericope for pericope, we can see Matthew and Luke improving the grammar of Mark, including improving even some historical details, uh, and uh, especially theological issues. They, they try to make Jesus appear bigger, greater, more knowledgeable, more powerful, and uh, more the Son of God than he was in, in Mark. And then in, in John's Gospel, uh, we see a, a greater degree of development, uh, where John's Gospel proclaims Jesus to be the Word of God who was there with God at the very beginning, and it's hard to translate Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 18, but it looks like John is saying that Jesus is a, a lesser sort of God, but he is the God through which God created everything else, so he is a begotten uh, God. Uh, we find this only in the gospel according to John. Sure, you can go back to the synoptics uh, with, with, with the hindsight of John in mind, and you can say, oh, it looks like in the synoptics it's there and there as well. Like, for example, what people call the Johannine thunderbolt. But if you didn't have John that clearly and explicitly identified Jesus as the Son of Man, uh, then we don't know which son Jesus is talking about there in Mark's uh, in Matthew's gospel. And one can give that a figurative meaning or interpret it in the sense that Jesus, as a prophet from God, he knows God, and he knows God, he has intimate knowledge of God that is not available to people on the ground, and he's bringing them that, infinite, that intimate knowledge. We see that John's gospel has modified the story, placing the death of Jesus on a different day, uh, showing that uh, Jesus uh, appeared to his disciples in such an incontrovertible way uh, to guarantee the idea that he resurrected from the dead. We see this uh, development uh, even in the Synoptic Gospels, where Mark ends the chapter 16, verse 8, in two very important codices of the Bible, and uh, later people try to append uh, an, an uh, appendix to that, and Matthew and Luke did it in their own way by going their separate ways, giving us narratives showing that Jesus appeared to his uh, disciples. Thank you all very much. You bet. Thank you very much, Dr. Ali, for that closing statement. And we'll kick it over to you for your closing statement as well. Cobain, the floor is all yours for five minutes. Uh, okay, so uh, I want to begin actually by uh, responding to something I meant to respond to earlier as to the uh, alleged changing of the date of Jesus's death in the Gospel of John. So it's alleged that in the Gospel of John, Jesus's uh, death date is changed so that he is killed as the Passover lamb is being killed. However, the case for this is actually extremely weak. The case is made on the basis of John saying that Jesus is killed on the preparation of the Passover. Now, this is taken by many to mean that it's the preparation day for the Passover the next day, but the day of preparation is actually simply the ancient name for Friday and of the Passover. Remember that Passover was a week-long celebration, and in ancient Jewish literature, the Passover uh, often refers to the whole week-long celebration. So preparation day of Passover week. Uh, when we read about uh, uh, Judas is going to betray Jesus. Some of the disciples think that he's rushing out to get something for the Passover meal. This doesn't make sense if there's a whole day to go before Passover is to come. Uh, and likewise, the dipping of the bread in the uh, in the bowl with Jesus. This is a ritual which happens in the Passover celebration. The Passover meal or the meal in the Gospel of John is a Passover meal, just like it is in the Synoptics. I recommend those interested in this check out Brant Pitre's book, Jesus and the Last Supper. I think the case that he makes is really uh, actually 
quite decisive, that there's no, there's really no tension at all uh, here. Um, it, it is suggested that John modifies the death of Jesus in order to make the appearances more concrete. Now, the problem that I have with this is that the alleged changes that are made are also reflected in the Gospel of Luke. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus, he eats with the disciples. The same kind of concrete evidence is given in Luke as it is in John. And there's interesting connections between Luke and John showing that the beloved disciple is present with Peter on the road uh, uh, when they rush to find the uh, tomb empty. For example, when the disciples on the road to Emmaus recount to the person who they don't know yet is Jesus, when they recount what has happened, they say some of those who were with us rushed to the tomb. So there were more than one people there. These subtle correspondences which indicate that the world being described is not invented by the author. It is a world external to the text. Likewise, when Mary Magdalene encounters Peter and the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, when she describes what was found at the tomb, even though some people say only Mary Magdalene is said to go to the tomb in the Gospel of John, she uses the first person plural. So John reflects knowledge that there was more than Mary Magdalene who was going to the tomb, but it is knowledge that is presented in this subtle way so that we're not being given an artificial harmonization. We're simply being given the words of the text, which reflect a history which is external to the text. Now, it's suggested that Matthew and Luke improve the grammar of Mark. Now, the problem I have with this is actually the reason that Mark's grammar is sometimes supposed to be uh, sloppy is actually a device which Richard Balcom describes in, uh, 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 in his book, Jesus and the eyewitnesses. And the device where John or where Mark goes from the plural to the singular, it's often taken to be very sloppy, but it actually makes a great deal of sense. If Mark is writing on the basis of Peter's preaching, Peter articulates these various pericope, Mark is writing them down, and the device accentuates the Petrine origin of these pericope. But the actual concrete evidence that we have, we don't have a single witness which says that Mark precedes Matthew and Luke, not one. And we know that the churches were networked together. We know that the earliest witnesses were acquainted with the disciples of Jesus himself. And we know that Mark 6 and Mark 13, Mark 13 in uh, referring to the bodies of teaching, which correspond to bodies in the gospel of Matthew, Mark tells us that it is part of a larger body of teaching. So the concrete evidence that we have all suggests that Matthew was written first as the tradition uniformly says. We can invent, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a polemical or, or contentious way, we can invent stories as to what sounds plausible to us, but the question is always, what does the concrete evidence indicate? Uh, one of the things that Shabir said is that it's ambiguous in the gospel or in the synoptic gospels who the son of man is. And, and I don't think that um, that's the case at all. For example, in Mark chapter two, when Jesus uh, uh, explains to the Pharisees why the disciples can pluck a grain, he explains it to them on the basis of his own authority and says, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, likewise, Shabir said that it's in John where we have this very high Christology in the synoptics, it's not as clear. But in John's gospel, Jesus's identity of the word of God is in the prologue. This is something which John is writing down. It's in Luke's gospel, where it's in the mouth of Jesus himself. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, quoting himself, therefore the wisdom of God said. And it's the wisdom of God who in Proverbs 8, 1 is described as begotten. The wisdom of God is very closely connected to the word of God. So this is something in Jesus' mouth himself. Uh, so I want to thank Shabir for engaging in this debate. And I think the historical evidence demonstrates the real Jesus is the Jesus of the gospels.
We're going to jump into Q&A, folks. want to say thanks so much for your questions, as well as don't forget that our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more from our guests, whether you be listening via YouTube or if you are listening via the podcast, you can find our guest links down in the description box below. Starting off with David P. Neff, thanks for your question, said, for Dr. Ali, the oldest copies of the Torah state Abraham sacrificed Isaac, not Ishmael. Why did Allah wait over a thousand years to fix that mistake in the text. Well, what I would say about that, um, my friends, is that uh, the, the Quran does not actually name uh, the, the person uh, specifically who was to be sacrificed, that son of Abraham. Uh, but it is an inference that Muslim scholars make. I think it's a good inference uh, that uh, the uh, child to be sacrificed was Ishmael, but the Quran does not uh, state so explicitly. And uh, uh, um, the Quran, in its context, had to pick its battles. The Quran wanted to reform uh, many ideas. And uh, the, the question of who precisely was the son to be sacrificed uh, was not high on that scale of what needs to be fixed. The Quran needed to uh, call Christians to believe that there is only one God and not to add anyone as partner along with God. Uh, whether this be Jesus or whether it might involve the worship of Mary. Uh, the Quran wanted to emphasize the um, personal responsibility of every individual as opposed to relying on someone to die for our sins and so on. So there were very important issues for the Quran to address. And then uh, as for more broadly, the Quran wanted to emphasize its monotheism to the pagan uh, uh, Meccans and, uh, and others in the area. Uh, so all of this uh, uh, constituted the continuous Quranic call to believe in God, the one God, believe in the life hereafter, and so on. You got it, and Thanks very much for your question. XXWLZXXX says, according to Dr. Barterman, the Islamic narrative of Jesus was based on the fabricated infancy gospel and the fabricated Gnostic gospel of Thomas. Not sure they didn't really mention who it's addressed for both of you can are respond we, to um, if you'd like so sorry are we is there is this like uh the person to whom the questions asked will respond and then the other person will comment or is it just the person if you'd like uh, to we could do that i think we maybe if we don't do it every time just because okay. we want to fit in as many questions from the audience as possible but sure, in sure. some cases that we can do that okay okay Let, yeah okay sure um, so do you want me to start and then, and then Kavain can, uh, offer a, a rebuttal or a comment on that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, uh, my friend, I don't know what, uh, uh, precisely, um, Bart Ehrman said about this, but, uh, uh, I would say that the Quran is a revelation from the almighty God. And, uh, and we know this from many different lines of argument. Uh, and for me, uh, more, uh, more so from the line of argument that I presented today, uh, showing the numerical correspondence of things in the Quran, which to me is uh, it's hard to imagine how this came about, knowing what I know about the history of how the Quran came to be compiled and then presented to us and handed down over the centuries. And these studies, which were recent studies to discover these uh, patterns, which are very complex, spanning many different chapters of the Quran. And uh, uh, so based on that, I would say that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, was an inspired man. He was inspired by God to teach us what is there in the in the Quran. And uh, even if some aspects of that are, are present in other sources, whether it be the infancy gospel of Thomas or other, or other uh, the, uh, the Quran's position is that this is how the story of Jesus ought to be told. And these are the... Um, 
the, the lessons that come from that story. Or to put it another way, uh, the Quran could be saying, you know the story as it is being told like this, whether it's in the Gospel of Thomas or, or Infancy Gospel of Thomas or elsewhere. So what is the implication of that story? So the Quran is cause, causing people to think. The Quran starts many of its stories uh, with the particle id, which a Muslim scholar say is short for udhkur, which means remember, just, just think about this or bring this to mind. Uh, so bring to mind that story as you know it. These are the implications of that story. So what's the implication of Jesus doing all of these miracles? The implication is that he's doing it with the help and support from God. That means that he's not God, but God is his God. And Over to Kibane, if you did have a response, yeah. we can give you one. Otherwise, uh, yeah. you bet. Uh, I, I think the, the fundamental question that we have to ask you, because Shabir, in, in terms of this debate, the uh, who is the real Jesus, Shabir has laid a very heavy weight on the witness of the Quran and its ostensible divine origin. Um, I think the question is, what makes most sense as an explanatory context? My argument has been that the external and internal evidence of the Gospels makes very good sense in terms of an explanatory context of uh, production by the first generation by witnesses of Jesus. The authorship question hasn't really been contested, so I think that that, that point really stands. Uh, now, the question is, how do we explain the phenomena of the text when we get to the Quran? Well, we have these numerical devices. I think some of them are probably here. I think there are probably numerical devices in the Quran. The problem is we know that in the uh, in early Islam, uh, there are connections with Judaism. We know there are aspects of Judaism which influence Islam. And we know that gematria, numerical devices, they're not just in the Tanakh, they're not just in the Quran, they're also in Jewish literature. So I don't think we need to appeal to supernatural influence to even get uh, uh, numerical devices there. So the question is, if we're making a probabilistic argument relative to chance as the known hypothesis, if chance is not the known hypothesis, then the probabilistic argument fundamentally doesn't work at all. And the question as to the explanatory context, the production context of the Quran. Why does the Quran look the way it does? My question would simply be, why is it that the stories of Jesus that the Quran gives to us seem to be non-randomly correlated with the stories that were circulating in the context of the world of early Islam? Indeed, some stories about the historical Jesus may well have been present in apocryphal literature, but if this is indeed a revelation from God and not something that is written by human beings in a particular place and time, one would expect stories from all across the non canonical and canonical literature. But it seems that the stories that the Quran selects are ones that are available to Muhammad and the early Muslims. And that very strongly indicates, I think, a human production context, human authorship uh, by fallible men who uh, were looking at texts written generations and generations after the life of Jesus and simply taking them to be reliable, even though um, they don't seem to, to give us reason to believe that. You got it. And I want to remind you folks, for the Q&A, we definitely want serious questions, as I know that sometimes people like to put bizarre things in the chat, but we are looking for serious questions, and we are not going to read things that are just silly. So, Dragon of Chaos, thanks for your question, said, the New Testament doesn't have eyewitness writers, and they are also anonymous, and they had changed each other's narratives, and therefore, it's not reliable. I think this is for you, Cobain, if you want a chance to respond. But again, if both of you want to respond, you can. Yeah, here's the fundamental point. Um, are they anonymous? Well, I would say in... in any significant sense of that word, no, they're not anonymous. Um, the annals of Tacitus, the annals of Tacitus within the body of text itself never names the author. Yet it's taken to be by Tacitus because that's what the manuscripts say, that's what external witnesses say. The Gospels, we do not have any manuscript of the Gospel which has the beginning of the text intact where it's anonymous. Every manuscript we have 
has the author with whom it has traditionally been associated. And I want to emphasize, this is across a very wide geographical range. Moreover, it's very difficult to explain if they began as anonymous, how they came to be associated with the people that they were. Now, if you're dealing with anonymous gospel, you want to give it extra authority. Mark, why Mark? I mean, you know Mark's name because he's associated with the gospel. In the New Testament, he's known as someone who caused a fight between uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, and that's about it. He's mentioned once in the letter of Peter. Why Mark? Why Luke? Why not just associate it directly with Peter? And in the Gnostic Gospels, we find a proliferation of Gospels associated with, a, with an apostle, and yet in the biblical Gospels, the uh, names are, are, are very plausible, and all of our external evidence and all of our manuscript evidence identifies it with these authors. Do they change each other? Well, they definitely have different perspectives, but I would argue that they cohere in ways which are really remarkable and do not suggest you know, an intentional effort to harmonize. For example, when you know that Bethsaida is two miles out from Jerusalem, well, then it makes a great deal of sense how the appearance narratives in all four Gospels work, because the apostles are staying at this house in Bethsaida. John has a house in Jerusalem, because he's known to the family of the high priest. He's from there. Uh, Mary Magdalene goes, and she sees Peter and John. Uh, and if you read them all together, it all rolls together very, very nicely. Look at John Wenham's book, The Easter Enigma, uh, on this point. And so um, they become more coherent the more you know about their setting not less coherent, and the actual concrete evidence indicates that these are written by eyewitnesses and those known to them. Gotcha. And then this one coming in from Dragon of Chaos says, so what if the Synoptic Gospels contain similar contents to the Quran? They contain truth even though they aren't reliable, same as the New Testament. I'm not sure who that's for or even what they're getting at, if either of you know. Yeah, I, I I don't quite grasp the the, the question. So, yeah, gotcha. if, if Kabin would like to take a stab at it, sure. I think maybe the the, the goal of the question is like uh, Muslims can acknowledge there's some reliable material in synoptics, um, even though they're not you know inspired. I, I think the the real point here is um, if these are texts which are produced much later, if they're historical fiction as Shabir has suggested. What should they look like? Well, we have examples of this. Look at, for example, the biography of Philostratus of Apollonius of Tyana. Look, for example, at the later Gnostic Gospels, which name very few locations and whose personal names do not correlate in any realistic way with the personal names in first century Palestine. You look at the uh, canonical Gospels, they've got lots of opportunities to miss badly. As I mentioned, there's like 80 to, to 90 personal and place names here, but they hit again and again and again. The uh, proportion of personal names that are given to us in the synoptic gospels and in john are the names which were common in first century palestine at that place in time even though the gospels weren't written there the only reasonable explanation for this is that we're dealing with texts which are very substantially reliable because these are real people and they didn't need to try to get this right there wouldn't have even been a way for them to try to get this right if it was invented narrative but they do get it right because it's real history you. Yeah, I think in that answer, uh, Kobein, if you allow me, um, so you're dealing with the historical um, setting, 
uh, which, as I said, we're, we're not disputing it's because it is a work of historical fiction can start with a historically plausible scenario with names and dates and places and so on, but can present its characters uh, out of sync with the actual reality. For example, they can make a man look better than he was actually in fact. And, and we have shown several examples where Matthew, Luke, and, and John improved the story so that Jesus does look better as we go from Mark uh, to Matthew and Luke and then to John. So unless you can deal with these uh, instances, uh, it, it doesn't uh, really help to just tell us that the historical situation is, is the accurate one. We want to know about the character of Jesus. Uh, what was Did he really claim to be the son of God in an ontological sense? And, and did he really claim that he would die for the sins of the world and so on? This one coming in, I think this one is for you, Dr. Ali, from Oliver Catwell. Thanks so much. Says, does the biblical form of multiple collected stories argue against the authenticity of the Quran? That is, why change styles so dramatically? Well, I, I, I think, Oliver, that the, the, the fact that you have the multiple uh, authors uh, is actually an embarrassment of, of riches in the Bible because they do not all tell us the same story. And uh, often we do not know who these authors are. Cobain is saying, well, you know, why affix a name like Mark who was not known to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, when people are looking back at this uh, sometime later, uh, they are trying to, uh, you know, affix it to a, a certain name which they, they can find plausible at the time. Uh, but that does not mean that this is what it is in fact. Today, most biblical scholars, uh, and, and you know, Cobain is citing a lot of conservative scholars like Richard Baucom, N.T. Wright, and so on. But even N.T. Wright, uh, you, you will find saying in, in one of his books that, um, you know, when we come to the gospel according to John, we don't know uh, who wrote it, if he was John, and if, if John, which John? Uh, so, so these are questions that still remain to this day. Uh, when we look at the theological presentation of Jesus, as uh, John Bowden has pointed out, the Gospels are all theological, and they have all uh, improved the story of Jesus. And when we see that Matthew and Luke has, have improved Mark the way they did, then we, we, have, we only know that because we can see by comparison how Matthew and Luke have improved the story from Mark. And, and John Bowden's point is that if we had Mark's predecessors, uh, we would see how Mark himself has improved the story as well. And scholars know that what we have in Mark is Mark's own composition of, uh, you know, taking this parrot stories, uh, pericope, and stringing them along uh, certain lines, like he wants to put the miracles together and so on. Um, and when we come to the Son of Man sayings, uh, the, the, the modern scholars uh, can categorize the sayings into three categories. One, uh, those sayings where Jesus is talking about himself going about, some of the passages that Cobain uh, cited, uh, and then passages talking about his uh, impending suffering and death. And then finally, the third category of sayings uh, uh, would comprise those in which he's speaking about a futuristic Son of Man. Some scholars think that he was speaking about someone other than himself in that uh, third category. Uh, so we, we can see that the gospel writers uh, are styling the stories to bring out the points they want to bring out. So that in John's gospel, there is no doubt about whom Jesus is speaking about as the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus identifies himself clearly as the Son of Man. Uh, so the, the, there definitely is an improvement as we go from one gospel to another. And then talking about the rest of the New Testament writings, we 
see that Paul has gone his own separate ways on, on things as well. And Paul's writings came before the Gospels and to a certain extent has influenced the Gospels. So uh, whereas Paul says that all foods are clean in Romans chapter 14, verse 20, uh, Mark has Jesus declared that all foods are clean as well. Uh, but this could hardly have been the declaration of Jesus because we know from Acts of the Apostles that this was still a question among the disciples. Still in, in Acts chapter 15, they ruled that even the Gentile followers of Jesus would have to abide by certain food laws, uh, at least three of them. You got it. This one coming in from SC. And SC, let me know I'm doing my best here. And if I don't say this question correctly, I am doing my best. They say, my question is for Dr. Ali. Whether or not you believe Paul and John or are messengers or prophets of God, and then asked, they had said, the Quran says that God sent three messengers, which would be Paul and John and I think that's what they're asking. So it might make more sense to you than it does to me. Yeah, so so there was what the Quran actually says, and then there is commentary on the Quran. So the, the Quran speaks about uh, two messengers who, in, in the 36th chapter of the Quran who were then supported by a third. Uh, but the Quran does not give the names of these messengers, but Muslim commentators can speculate and they get information from the Jewish and Christian friends who might have these been, and uh, some might identify, um, you know, Paul and, and other uh, early Christians as disciples of Jesus who might have been meant by this uh, Quranic uh, narrative. Uh, but the Quran does not uh, say anything directly about Paul. Uh, or about John by, by name, except that the Quran names John the Baptist, but here we're talking about a different John. And uh, as for Paul, when we study his life and teachings, we see that some of it is in variance with uh, what, what Muslims are led to believe on the basis of the Quran. And uh, I would uh, tend to think that when the Quran is speaking indirectly about people who have misled uh, Christians, uh, the Quran may have had uh, Paul in mind, but but I don't know the mind of God, and that's just my uh, humble observation. Could I say a couple things? You bet. Um, uh, so I just want to comment on some of the things that Shabir said about, about the nature of the Gospels. Um, so uh, Shabir has suggested that, well, just because the Gospels present a historically plausible setting, that doesn't mean that they're history. But the problem is not that you know they present certain historical information therefore it means that it's all history the problem is that the kind of historical information it presents is abundant uh it pertains to uh, very specific details which requires the authors to have had first-hand access to not just the general shape of jesus's life but very specific witnesses that's why when we deal with something like 80 or 90 personal and place names that's a lot of chances to get things wrong but it's a lot of details that actually are verified when we look at the kind of data that we had and one can all Always say, well, it, he gets those details right, but all the other details, the details that we don't have explicit verification for, uh, uh, those 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 could still be wrong. And technically, that's true, but that's not the simplest and most parsimonious explanation. And as to the anonymity of the Gospels, I would just say, by any standard that we judge anonymity in terms of text from antiquity, they are not anonymous. They are only anonymous in the sense that. Almost every single one of my posts on the internet is anonymous because and almost none of my posts do I identify myself by name. But the manuscripts that we have, which have the beginning of the text, they all have the, text, the authors with whom they're associated. All of our ancient witnesses give us the authors with whom they're traditionally associated. And if they were anonymous, we would expect to see them being attributed to different authors depending on the place in which we find the manuscripts. We don't find that. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John associated with these four gospels. Every piece of evidence which comments on it cites them uh, as to that point. And I would just say, as to most scholars, I mean, 
I, I don't mean to be crude, but I, I, and and or contentious, but fundamentally, from an epistemic point of view, I don't care what most scholars say. I do not think that um, the consensus of scholarship has any meaningful correlation with the truth of things. I think there's all sorts of reason that consensus is developed, and I think it's as likely to be true as it's as it is to be false. The only reason I cite scholars is not because they're scholars, but because I think that they make a good point that I want to uh, uh, give appropriate attribution. Finally, on the Son of Man point, if you look at the Son of Man references in the Gospel of John, while it might be acknowledged that in, in the Gospel of John, the Son of Man is Jesus, there's no more reason in John to say that every reference to the Son of Man is Jesus than there is in the synoptics. In both, I would say it's equally clear. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the Son of Man in the third person again and again. In the Gospel of John, it says no one has ascended to heaven except he was descended from heaven, the Son of Man. One could say, well, that Son of Man is maybe a different Son of Man. Uh, but just as in the synoptics, Jesus refers to the Son of Man to explain his own actions. In every place that we can identify the Son of Man, it's Jesus. And that means that just by the normal rules of interpretation, um, uh, it's far more parsimony to say, okay, this is a way that Jesus talked about himself than to say otherwise, regardless of what, what scholars say or do not say. You got it. This one coming in from The Noon. It says, Dr. Ali, what is the purpose of Jesus being born of a virgin in the Quran? It makes sense in the Christian paradigm, but why did the second to last prophet need to be a miracle himself from his birth in the Quran? So we, we cannot know the mind of God to know why God does certain things or allows certain things uh, to play out the way it does. Uh, but Muslim scholars have said that, uh, you know, if you look at the history, we see that Adam was created uh, without any parent and Eve was created from a, a man, but not from a woman. And the rest of us are all, all created from both men and women. Uh, and uh, no one had been created uh, um, from a woman, but not from a man. And they said that this explains why it happened in the case of Jesus. So it rounds up the picture and shows that God can create human beings in so many diverse uh, ways. Uh, I don't necessarily hold to that uh, interpretation. Um, the, the Quran, in fact, uh, does not uh, say explicitly that, Jesus, that Mary was a virgin at the time of conceiving of Jesus. Uh, the Quran does present her story in such a way that we know that this is a special birth, the way in which God is speaking about it. Uh, but uh, uh, the birth of John the Baptist was also a special birth, the way the Quran is speaking about it. And what exactly was so special about the birth of Jesus is not clearly uh, and explicitly stated in the Quran, though it is the most common interpretation among Muslims uh, that Mary was a virgin at the time of conceiving uh, of Jesus. As to why she might have been surprised, uh, well, we know from uh, uh, biblical uh, tradition that uh, Mary might have been about 12 years old at the time. And if we, you go to a 12-year-old girl in a traditional setting and you say to her, well, you know, you're going to have a baby, uh, she's going to say, you know, how can I have a baby? Perhaps blushing. She would say, I'm not even married. Uh, but, and the Quranic narrative gives her the assurance that God is going to make this happen. Uh, but when we say that God is going to make something happen, it does not uh, negate the natural causes by which the thing would happen. So perhaps at the time uh, when she, not perhaps, but definitely at the time when she got the Annunciation, uh, she was a virgin. Uh, but uh, she, you know, the, the th events could follow a natural uh, order. Uh, after that, uh, leading to the conception and uh, delivery of uh, a birth of Jesus uh, in a normal marriage. And, and God knows best about that. You got it. This one coming in from Daniel Zachariah says, 
Dr. Ali, how would you prove to a Jewish interlocutor that Jesus is the Messiah? Cobain mentioned using Isaiah to show Jesus is the savior of mankind. What would you say? So uh, from the Quranic perspective, the, the uh, term, term Messiah is used, but it is not uh, explained. And Muslim scholars have had to think about what Messiah may mean, and they try to analyze it from the point of view of Arabic uh, etymology. Um, but, but something needs to be said here that is very important. You know, if we didn't have the Quran, which I said before, then uh, Muslims may not believe that Jesus is the Messiah at all. Because uh, like those who do not believe either in the Quran or the Bible, they, they, you know, you go ask somebody, they heard about Jesus, they may think that Jesus is a good man, but why would they call him Messiah? Because this term we know comes from a Jewish context, Hamashiach, the Messiah from the, from the Hebrew. Uh, but then uh, Muslims would have to now believe in the Bible in order to believe that he's the Messiah. And then to believe in the Bible from a Muslim point of view, like for myself, uh, I have to be honest with you, uh, knowing everything we've been discussing here, um, I, I would find it very difficult if I put the Quran aside, I would find it difficult to believe in Jesus at all. Because the, the presentation, I would still continue to believe that he was a good man. Uh, but to uh, to think that he was the Messiah, that he was a messenger of God, a prophet, and so on, all of this would go along with the Quran. One of the most telling features is that in the Gospels, Jesus is presented as the Davidic Messiah. And Davidic Messiah, by definition, would be one who would take over from the Romans. He would rule uh, temporarily in this in, on this earth. He would institute the kingdom of God. But uh, everyone agrees that Jesus did not do that. So the Gospels tried to make it seem that it was not imperative at the time. He will come back and do it when he when he returns. So Acts of the Apostles has Jesus coming back to institute it. Uh, the Gospel according to John says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's not even going to bother with that. He has a different idea of what is kingdom. Uh, so, But when we go back and we realize that the Gospel writers are presenting Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, and he failed to be that, it means that he, his life ended in ignominy, uh, in with, um, uh, with, with without fulfilling what he said he was going to do. If from uh, Luke's uh, opening, uh, he was proclaimed already to be the king Messiah who would come, and then he did not sit and rule. The moment he declared to be himself the Messiah uh, or a king, uh, instead of sitting on a throne, he ended up hanging on a cross. Well, Christians would say, but you know, he resurrected from the dead. But then we would see that the proof that he resurrected from the dead is weak, and the, the, the proof that he was on the cross is strong. And then we would have strong reasons for believing that Jesus died an ignominious death, uh, failing to fulfill his own prophecy, especially the one that says that he will be coming again soon. So altogether, if I leave the Quran aside, I wouldn't even be able to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, much less trying to, to prove that he was. But if I believe the Quran to be the word of God as I do, uh, then I can say to our Jewish friends that the Quran is here as the word of God, and this word of God proclaims Jesus to be Al-Masih ibn Maryam, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. So I know that the Quran, uh, as the word of God, uh, proclaims him to be the Messiah, and that is why I proclaim it to you. You got uh, it. Thank you very much. And this one coming could in. I, sorry, could I comment on, on that 
point. If it's maybe just a pithy one, we've got more questions, but we'll give you a, let's see. If it's a super pithy one, just because we've got a number of questions more uh, that we want to sure. try to get in yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the messianic identity of Jesus really is verified by the fact that today billions of Gentiles from around the world worship the God of Abraham, something which was not true prior to the coming of Jesus. When Jesus died 100 years later, Christianity was an obscure Near Eastern cult. Yet today, every year, there's a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from the nations to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the name of a Jew named Jesus. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11 and following, uh, they say that what the Messiah is going to do is he will establish a kingdom. Yes. How will he establish a kingdom? He will sit in the heavenly sanctuary, Isaiah chapter 65 to 66, Daniel chapter 2 and 7. Uh, he will sit in the heavenly sanctuary and he will subject the nations to his feet. Isaiah 63 combines Genesis 49 about the Messiah and Judges 5 about the God of Israel. I'm sure that it's the same figure. I'll give you the last word, uh, Shabir, just because the question was originally for you and then we've got to move on to the next one. No, it's fine. We can move on. You got it. This one coming in from Christian Daniel. Thanks so much. Says, Dr. Ali, you mentioned Aaron in the debate, but the Aaron of the Quran is said to be the uncle of Jesus. Do we trust this author of the Quran to tell us who Jesus was if he got this fact wrong? Well, the Quran does not really say that Aaron is the uncle of Jesus. The Quran has a narrative where uh, people address Mary and they say, Ya Ukta Harun, uh, O, o uh, sister of Aaron. Uh, now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that the Quran has confused this Aaron, um, the, the sister of Mary, there in the time of Jesus, uh, with uh, the brother of Mary in this time of uh, Jesus, in the time of Jesus, with the other Aaron, who is known uh, as the brother of Moses. Actually, the Quran shows very cl uh, clear and intimate knowledge of the Bible, uh, both the Old and New Testaments, and this has been brought out very clearly in the study by Sidney Griffith in his book, uh, The Bible in Arabic. So uh, the, the uh, old uh, claim against the Quran that, oh, the Quran has got this all confused. The Prophet Muhammad must have uh, heard these stories and he got them all mixed up and times and dates and so on. He got them all confused. This is not true. Uh, there, there is a, an, an interpretation that is quite reasonable uh, that uh, just as people today name themselves after the disciples of Jesus and after the Old Testament prophets in a similar way in, in Muslim tradition and also in, in the time of Jesus, people would have done that. So you can have in the same family uh, somebody named uh, Aaron already, and then when they have uh, a daughter, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, let, let's name her Mary. That sounds nice because there was a, a, an Aaron and Mary who were brother and sister, so we can have another brother and sister who are Aaron and Mary here. So it's quite a reasonable explanation. Uh, the, the names recur, and even to this day, we will have among Muslims, uh, you know, in families, uh, people who have uh, all of these names, Zechariah and Yahya and uh, Mary and Harun and Musa and, and so on. So uh, that to me is a reasonable explanation. Another explanation may be that uh, Mary was related to uh, Elizabeth and Elizabeth is said to be from the Levitical line. So Mary probably was from the Le Levitical line. And maybe that's another way of referring to her as Ukta Harun, meaning that she is part of that. She's a sister in faith uh, with, with Harun, with, with Aaron, because she's from the Levitical line. And I know the gospel, according to Luke, has this uh, genealogy. And some people say that's the genealogy of Mary, and that is traced back uh, to, to David. So making her in the Davidic line. But uh, literally, uh, the genealogy of, uh, of Luke uh, uh, is tracing uh, the, the line of succession uh, through David, uh, through um, Jesus' father, uh, Joseph, uh, not through Mary. You bet. And this one coming in from SC, or forgive me, this is 
pineapple platypotamus says, and I think that they mean, this is my guess, I think they mean like, why isn't it self-evident regarding these ideas? They say, why do good ideas need evidence? That's at least my best interpretation of what they're asking. So why ben, do you, you speak to this one because I've been speaking a bit. Sure, sure. Um, why, like something like Christianity or Islam, why do these ideas um, need to be argued? Why do they need evidence? Um, well, what I would say is that when you look at the arguments that people have against Christianity or against theism, the reason that people come to the conclusions that they do is generally not because they've analyzed an argument, concluded that it's wrong when it's actually right. The problem that I've noticed is really that an argument is being misframed, or in fact, most defenders of a given faith tradition are taking taking something for granted, which they really not should not take for granted. Now, Shabir and I would actually, I think, agree on this because Islam says that all nations began as monotheistic. Uh, people ask the question, uh, well, why, why did God only reveal himself to the Jews? I mean, isn't he the God of the whole earth? Why didn't he talk to all nations? Um, if he really cares for everyone, why did he wait until Jesus talked to all nations? Now, actually, the evidence is incredibly powerful that uh, monotheism or the worship of the one supreme creator god is the primal tradition of all nations if you look at a recent book by winfred cordovan uh in the beginning god you will see it's just remarkable that uh if you nations which generally have a earlier form of human culture with a high degree of probability generally have a monotheistic god more often or if you look at mesoamerican texts those ones which we have we don't have very many they refer to the heart of heaven as the supreme creator god in china it's shangdi or the emperor of heaven and you'll notice that anthropologists call this the sky god phenomenon and that's because in the hebrew bible gentiles identify the supreme creator god as the god of heaven Genesis 14, Exodus chapter 18, the book of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, the God of heaven, because the heavens signify God's rule over all things, and God is set apart from other lesser heavenly beings by his sovereignty. And so people take for granted that, well, paganism is earlier, idolatry is earlier, monotheism comes later. And I think uh, apologists from whatever tradition they're coming from often take for granted the most problematic premises, and when you actually study them, there's a great deal of evidence to say that Christianity is not only as true as the apologists say, but much more true than anybody could have hoped to believe. You got it. And thank you very much for this question. The noon says, Dr. Ali, 1291 explicitly mentions that Miriam guarded her chastity. What else does this mean if not protecting her virginity? Yeah, I'm not sure that that reference is quite correct because 12 is Surah Yusuf uh, that doesn't speak about Mary. But uh, nonetheless, uh, yeah, it says that he, she guarded her chastity. But that could be, uh, I mean, in other surahs, for example, in, uh, you know, uh, Surah 66, for example. Um, but, but nonetheless, uh, you know, what, is, what does it mean, guarded her chastity? So it could be that she, it means that she remained a virgin, she was pure, um, in that she did not commit any act of indecency, uh, and then eventually she got married. So in, in marriage, uh, you know, a, a woman is actually thought to be fortified in the marriage itself. So she's called minal uh, muhsanat, uh, from among those who are fortified, the same term, which means that she, you know, ahsanat farjaha. So she guarded her, uh, she, she fortified her private parts, meaning that she didn't allow any uh, illicit entry. 
but when she gets married, then this is not illicit, and, and this is quite acceptable in the Islamic uh, tradition. So she did no wrong by getting married and having a child, if indeed that is what happened. I'm not saying necessarily so. I'm saying that uh, the Quranic narrative does not necessarily indicate uh, that at the time of uh, uh, delivering Jesus, uh, Mary uh, was still a, a virgin, or even at the time of conceiving uh, of, of him. She might have conceived of him in a natural uh, way, in, in a legitimate uh, marriage relationship, perhaps with Joseph or someone else. The, the name of her husband is not mentioned in the Quran. This one coming in from SC as well says, can you read, they say, what is Dr. Shabir Ali's response to the Quran 36, 13 through 14 reading and present to them an example, the people of the city, when the messengers came to it, when we sent to them two, as in the number two, but they denied them, so we strengthened them with a third, and they said, indeed, we are messengers for you. Now, this came up earlier, you probably recognize, so if you feel like you've already dealt with it, no worries. Otherwise, if you want to respond to this particular quote, you can. Yeah, just quickly, um, a listener, I mean, you, you, you've asked me this before, and, or someone else has asked me the same question. Uh, so, you know, the, the Quran mentions the two, um, uh, at least nine, the two of them, but it doesn't mention their names. And then it says, uh, Then we, we strengthen them with the third, but it doesn't mention the name of the third. So Muslim commentators can speculate and get information from our Jewish and Christian friends and suggest that maybe it was this or that apostle of Christ, uh, but but that's not in the Quran itself. And, and that is subject to revision because just because uh, uh, an ancient commentator on the Quran said it uh, does not mean that they had accurate information to, to go by. You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from SC also says, if not John and Paul, Dr. Ali, who was the the third messenger God sent? Are they Christian? So if you like I said, if you if you like if you feel like you've dealt with this uh, topic, no worries. Otherwise, mm -hmm. if you want to respond, you can. Yeah. So, you know, they, I have to say, I see that they, the Quranic narrative here is giving us a story. And, and even when the Quran mentions the names of individuals, often, you know, that's not the point. The point is, what do we gather from the story? And in this story as well, in Surah 36, it says, What Rabdahum Mathalan Ashab al Qariya? It coined for them the similitude of the uh, the people of the village. So he doesn't even mention which village we're dealing with. The, the whole point is not exactly which village and who were the specific messengers, but you know what is the response of people and how God supports the people who believe in his message. So those who rejected the messengers, how they reject the messenger, how they malign the messenger, how they decide to harm and persecute the messenger. And then there's the story of this man who is not named, uh, but, but who uh, you know, uh, uh, says to the people, uh, he comes running. A man comes uh, running from the innermost part of the city. He says, oh, my people believe in the messengers. So he is not named either, nor are the messengers named. But the whole point of the story is look at the way in which uh, people respond differently to the words uh, of, of God. Some decide to slay the messenger, uh, the messengers in this case. Uh, some decide to follow the messenger, this man in this case, and we must be like this man. He gives us the ideal uh, response to the message that comes from God. You bet. And Z Asher, thanks for your question, says, I've heard this name before. I can't remember who it is. And they, they said, is Dr. Ali willing to debate 
Christian Prince. So, um, uh, James, uh, I, you know, I don't want to speak about someone else who is absent. And uh, a Christian Prince is known as uh, as a Christian apologist, uh, and uh, he's widely known on the internet. I, I'm, I'm not aware that he's made any personal appearances for for debates that he has had. And there's been a long-standing challenge: Shabir, will you debate Christian Prince, and so on? And uh, I have explained in some depth uh, in an article on my website uh, why I have not uh, agreed so far to have. Uh, a, a dialogue with him, um, but uh, you know I, I don't want to say anything more uh, about that. You got it. Sorry about that. That's something that uh, kind of coming into the middle of it. I'm always <laughs> like reluctant of where I'm like I don't know what the history is here. So I hope it's. But anyway, thanks for your tactful response. And then the noon did correct me, and I'm so sorry that I, I did actually get your question wrong. So they this is a different question. They had said, I think it was 21 that they wanted. Me. Yeah, okay. 21, not 12. So their question was, uh, they said, uh, Shabir, and in, in, I think you maybe nonetheless addressed it, even if I did get the verse wrong, namely from Surah 2191 instead of 1291. I think I said I just had a mental error there. Sorry about that. Okay. And so, uh, but I, I think that nonetheless the... Yeah, the same answer. Same answer. Holds. You bet. She guarded her chastity. Wallati ahsanat farjaha. Uh, so the Quran basically says, as for the one who um, guarded her chastity, uh, we blew into her uh, or into it uh, through our angel. Uh, well, it, you know, that's an interpretation. Uh, yes, it says uh, from our spirit. So the, the translation here says, uh, that at least one translation says, uh, through our angel, and we made her and her son a sign uh, for the world. So it's referring to Mary and the fact that he had, she had guarded her chastity uh, up until that point. But you know, guarding the chastity could be a, a, a way of speaking even about a married woman in in the Islamic tradition, because uh, there there is nothing in the Islamic tradition that uh, encourages a woman to remain a virgin. Rather, the contrary, uh, a good and pious, righteous woman. Uh, could be a married woman. You bet. And that is it for I do want to let you guys out of here because we've actually gone over the Q&A time. So thank you very much, Dr. Ali and Kabane, for staying with us even longer than promised. We really do appreciate that. I want to remind you folks, both of our guests are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, which I see there's a lot of people waiting and people have really enjoyed this debate, you can click on their links below, folks, and you can hear plenty more or read plenty more from our guests, who we really do appreciate for being here. They make the channel fun. And so I want to say one last thank you, Dr. Ali and Kabane. It's been a true pleasure to have you with us tonight. And uh, thank you, James. Thank you. And I'm going to be having a uh, post-debate live stream. So if you guys want to ask questions or whatever, uh, you can come over to that. You bet. So I want to say thank you, everybody. Hope you feel welcome, whether you be Christian, atheist, Muslim, you name it. We are really glad to have you here. And so I'll be right back in just a moment with some post-credits updates on upcoming debates. So stick around for those. And thanks so much for being with us. Be back in just a moment.
Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here. We hope you are having a great night. I have to say, that was one of my favorite debates in a long time. Wasn't that? I loved it. So, really do appreciate it that it has been a, both a rigorous debate and a professional debate, that the speakers were cordial and tactful. We really do appreciate them. And we want to encourage you in the audience, as always, I know it's the internet, folks, but nonetheless, we want to encourage you to attack the arguments instead of the person. We do appreciate both of our guests who are linked in the description and maybe you're like, hey, I'd like to hear more. You certainly can hear more. And that includes whether you're listening via the podcast as well. As you can see on the bottom right of our screen, we run virtually every podcast app out there. In fact, if you pull out your phone right now, you can find our podcast on your phone right now. We are excited about the fact that the podcast has been growing rapidly, super encouraging. And we'll let you know you can find our guest link there as well. But I want to say, you guys, we really do appreciate you being with us. I've got to go in a little bit because I am actually, I'm a little bit under the weather. So you guys know that I had COVID a couple weeks ago, and then I was out of the woods for about a week or two. But now I went to the doctor today. They think I've got maybe bronchitis or a sinus infection. I'm not quite back to 100% yet. My hope is by this Friday's debate that I will be. And you guys, it's going to be a juicy one. This Friday, you don't want to miss it. We're going to have a debate on whether or not God exists. And that's going to be Muslim <coughs> versus ex-Muslim. <coughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> we want to encourage you, whether you be Muslim or Christian or atheist, we hope you feel welcome. We are glad you were here. I see you there in the old live chat. I want to say hello to you before I take off. Proper FPV, glad to have you with us. Mr. Din, good to see you, as well as Princess of God, glad you are with us. Darth Revan, glad you're here. The Orthodox Albanian, thanks for being with us. C. Los 18, glad you are with us. Sajonav, good to see you. Thanks so much for your kind words. Appreciate your support. Mark Reed, good to see you there. I see you there in the old chat. Ken McCracken and Marion Grand Bruheim, glad to see you. Jacob, happy you're here. Christoph, good to see you again. And Kagito Ergo, glad you were with us. The Noon, thanks for being with us. Nat, I see you there in the old live chat. Good to have you here. And Truth Defenders, good to see you. As well as <clears throat> Buckled Crane 96 glad you were with us. Thanks for your support, Brooke Sparrow. Amazing. As I've just pinned her message. Indeed, hit that subscribe button as we have many more juicy debates coming up. And you don't want to miss them. My dear friends, I am glad that you are here. It's always fun, and this always gets me in a great mood. Rublar75, glad you are with us, as well as Kevin Matthew. Thanks for being here. And Magnificent Prophet, we're glad you're with us. Denkard, glad you are here. Leo Palamite, Leo Palamite, glad you're with us. And Rublar75, as well as Nathaniel J. Franco, thanks for coming by. And amazing. Rashid Akil, Rashid Akil, glad to have you with us, as well as Nataverse, good to see you back. Hope you're doing well. Blessed by Jesus, glad you're with us. And Buckled Crane 96, happy to have you with us, as well as Braden Rice, thanks for being with us today. And Reactionary, glad you are here. And thanks, Brooks Farrow, for your support, saying hit that like button. Amazing. Leo Palamite, thanks so much for your being with us. And I didn't miss anybody. Let me see here in the old chat. Say hi, though. I do like what it's nice to get to say hi to you guys and actually get to inter inter interact with you guys. I love the debates. Don't get me wrong, but it's also nice to get to talk to you guys. My name is Jeff. Glad to see you as well as David. Glad you are with us. And Mr. Alio 84 
hashtag antics. We're glad you're with us, as well as Muhammad's Aorta Quran 6946. Thanks for coming by, as well as the Orthodox Apologetics channel. Glad you are with us. Big man, glad you are with us, as well as Yaline Claire. Thanks for coming by. <laughs> Let's see. Um, Z, Z Asher, glad you are with us. And I saw the light. Glad you are here. And then also, Steel Israel, thanks for coming by. Appreciate your kind words. And my dear friends, you guys are you guys are funny. I appreciate you guys hanging out here. It's fun. And uh, Chris Dealney, glad you're with us. And SC, glad to see you there. Christian, glad you're with us. And let's see here. I'm almost caught up. Jade Maiko, let me know if I'm pronouncing it right. We're glad you're here, Jade. Thanks for hanging out with us. And let me just scroll up just to be sure that I've caught up. Hannah Anderson, good to see you. Says, hope you feel much better soon. Thank you, Hannah. I'm going to sleep so much tomorrow. For real. I'm going to sleep till like... I don't have to, all I have to do, like technically all I have to do in terms of deadlines tomorrow is grade. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to sleep as long as I can and catch up on sleep. Denkard, good to see you. Thanks for your kind words. Says, thanks. Keep up the great debates. Maybe the best channel of YouTube. Thanks, Denkard. Seriously, that means a lot. And I got to tell you, we've been so excited. This debate was a high quality debate. We are, we've been thrilled to host these guys tonight. And also, you guys, I don't know if you saw last time we hosted Dr. Boyce and Dr. Richard Carrier and whether or not Jesus existed. That was our last debate. And then we've got a big one coming up this Friday. We've got a couple of big ones coming up this weekend. So we have been just really encouraged that the channel, join us while we are small, folks, because we are just beginning. We have a vision that we are determined to fulfill, namely to provide a level playing field so that everybody can make their case on a neutral platform while we try to get different people from different walks of life talking. And so we want to say thank you guys. We love you guys. Seriously, you make it fun. And seriously, it is like a family here. I, I, I do really want to say we appreciate you being with us, whether you be Christian, atheist, Muslim, you name it. We're glad you're here. And Thanks, Brooks Sparrow. I see you there in the old Twitch chat. Thanks for your kind words. I hope to feel better soon, and I'm optimistic. I think I will. I bet by Friday there will be some pretty clear progress. And then Tabatzel, good to see you. And yeah, I, I don't know if you, so I had the post-COVID fatigue. I don't know if you guys, if you've had COVID, a lot of people have a few weeks afterward where they are just, it's honestly, in terms of getting work done, it was easier to get work done when I had the actual COVID symptoms. Now being past COVID, the last few weeks since the symptoms cleared up, I've had this fatigue that is even worse in terms of getting work done. I'm just so zapped. And so I want to say thanks for your support, you guys. And so thanks. Brooke is right. I'm pinning this to the top of the chat. We do have a Twitch channel. Want to encourage you, check that out. It's a little bit more quiet over there, a little bit more easygoing. Boxer Fencer, good to see you there. I see you there. Glad you came by. And then... Two seconds. I'm almost caught up. Thanks for your kind words, Jade Mike Mako. That really does mean a lot. I appreciate you saying that. And <coughs> Chris Dealney says, James, I've got a boot too. Love you, bro. Thanks so much. I do love my Wisconsin accent. And then we do have a Discord, which is linked in the description. In case you like Discord, want to let you know about that. You can check out the Modern Day Debate Discord. It's the only official one. Abdur Rahman, thanks for coming by. Says, hit that like. I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Abdur. And then, <clears throat> let's see here. Hannah Anderson says, good night, everyone. And hit that.
bell for notifications. Thanks for your support, Hannah. And Oliver Catwall says, hi, Modern Native Hi, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for coming by, Brian. Seriously, I hope you're doing well, man. I am excited. Seriously, thanks for all your support and encouragement. And uh, let's see. Ahim Alexander, thanks for coming by. We are glad that you are with us. And then, let's see. Willie Pal, thanks for coming by. Appreciate your kind words. And let's see here. We are considering doing more panel discussions. That's something that we're open to it. We're going to see how it might work. It might take a little time for us to get into that actual like habit, but thanks for that feedback. And then Adam Smith says, amazing. Thanks, Adam Smith. I couldn't agree more. I want to say thank you guys. I love you guys. Seriously, thanks for making this fun. And then Hannah Anderson says, we're having an after show in Discord. Amazing. Well, check that out, friends. That I just pinned. <coughs> that... Discord link is in the description. I got to run. I got to get some sleep. I want to say thanks for your support, you guys. I love it. It means a lot. Dan R., good to see you. Thanks for coming by. And Zach Morgan, thanks for your kind words. Your support means a lot. I love you guys. Thanks for making this fun. I'm excited to see you guys this Friday. And then we got another debate Saturday. And it has just been amazing and encouraging to see just the big things you got in store and then the success of the past conference. We are so excited about the future, you guys. And we are absolutely determined. Without a shadow of a doubt, my dear friends, to fulfill the vision of providing a neutral platform so that everybody can make their case on a level playing field as we get different people from different walks of life talking. I want to say thanks, everybody. We appreciate you guys. We're excited about the future. And join us, if you haven't already, as we fulfill the vision together. I hope you guys have a great rest of your night. Thanks so much. And I look forward to seeing you in the next one. how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.